Probably. <laughs> this week we have no pre-credit sequence. At all? No. Okay. Run credits! Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! I'm telling you, my spider sense is tingling. Amazing Spider-Man number 129, mint condition. Worth a thousand bucks. Comic book. No, it's not just a comic book. This is the first appearance of a Punisher. Uh, sorry to interrupt, Willow, but it's the fat signal. How do I get it to work? Willpower, like the Green Lantern's ring. You call it comic books. That's so cute. Cute, it's very rugged and manly. Just a bit cute, huh? I think it's sweet. It must be really hard when all your friends have, like, superpowers. You must feel like Janelle's. You can't charge innocent people for saving their lives. Spider-Man does. Action is his reward. Hey, kids, comics! Hello, everybody! Hello, everyone. And that's, is that become our standard greeting now? Yeah, I quite like it. Mm-hmm. It sounds very upbeat, very jolly. Just before we launch into a tirade of negativity. Negativity? No, no, we never do that, do we? No. Well... Mostly, we don't do that. Unless you put a Grant Morrison X-Men comic in front of me. Speaking of which, I have been listening to the Grant Morrison interview on Fat Man on Batman. Have you? Yes. I've still not finished it. Could you not get through it? Kevin Smith really <laughs> annoys me. Um, I'll be honest, they both annoy me. Really? Yeah. Grant Morrison's interesting to... Oh, I think Morrison's very interesting. There's a certain element of smugness and pomposity, though. But, you know. I can see where you're coming from with that with these oh I can make all these obscure references to really old comics but I can overlook that because I find it interesting I don't mind these references to old comics like when what, what was it the issue of Black Panther with the bird just the yeah. issues of bird dying the, the best thing about that Kevin Smith didn't know what he was talking about because he, he couldn't he put said, him in what, what, what's meta yeah, and, and I'm going. He didn't say meta. He said mirrored. Yeah. How can you be a writer and not know what a mirrored beginning and ending is? Mm. It's where the beginning of the story mirrors the end. But when I was even talking to it, because I'm like an old person like that, I will. <laughs> you talk, talk to podcasts. I do talk. I don't to know podcasts. anybody who does that. No, of course not. But <laughs> when he said, "What do you mean by meta?" and I was like, "God, a metatextual story is a story." Yeah, but see, I said, but that's not what he said. No, I, I also he said mirrored that because I was questioning. That. I, I went back and listened to it yeah, again. And he clearly says mirrored. Yeah, but I, I will give him that. Maybe the accent's causing him some it's, problems. It's not even the accent. You could clearly hear, hear that he said. See, to us, we. we I can I can normally understand Scottish ninety eight percent of the time. Yes, but I've got Scott as a mate, mm. so I'm kind of used to it. Yeah, especially when he, he does. Our best mate, well, one of my best mates, is Scott Allison. He doesn't. Scott. He doesn't sound Scottish. He doesn't sound Scottish. But when until he tells he's with his family, yeah. <laughs> and when he suddenly talks to his family, he, he becomes Scottish. It's like he has to put on the voice. Yeah, no, no, it just happens. Yeah, it's like have you ever seen John Barrowman? talk to his family yeah. John Barabin's an American but he was raised in Scotland mm. and so his family have Scottish accents but he has an American accent and he has an American accent so yeah. he may have been born in Scotland and raised in America one of, I can't remember which way around it is mm. but he'll be chatting to his mum on one of these shows that he did and he started speaking Scottish Yeah, it just must be a thing of the Scottish accent I mean it may be with other accents but primarily we do notice it with Scott although my granddad whenever he would talk to our Dennis yeah. He would suddenly develop that St. Helens, that hard St. Helens accent. <laughs> you alright, cock? He would he'd develop that. Yeah. And he never talked with a St. Helens accent, my granddad. No, Despite yeah. the fact he grew up there. Yeah. 
he doesn't have that accent I've honestly never heard that. he spent what was it 18 20 years in the navy yeah. do not sing the YMCA song um, no not that navy I'm going around the world so we lost the accent mm. and now he, he doesn't have one really does he no it's kind of neutral he doesn't have a St Helens accent mm. but when he would talk to his brother yeah. that would come back and I always thought that was really really quite cute Dad, I've never heard that See, I quite like accents. Mm. I'm a big fan of accents. I like the Irish accent. I like the Scottish accent. I don't like the Northern accent, but I'm allowed to not like the Northern accent because well, I am Northern. Me and my friend were talking today, and uh, we were talking about how the American people particularly mm. um, see our accents. Yeah, they all they all think that we're very. We all talk like Emma Peel in the Avengers, yeah. darling. And um, that I was I was saying to him, yeah, but sure, they might like our accent, but. I wouldn't exactly say a northern accent is all that appealing. So, <laughs> I wouldn't know. She said, alright, try a, a, a southern accent then. So I didn't say, no, now you just sound like a <laughs> <laughs> So I was like, alright. Okay. Well, it depends what southern you're doing, because there's so many different dialects within 20 miles. So you're yeah. just down the road from us, you've got a hard Mancunian accent. Mm. Just down the road the other way, you've got Warrington, which isn't quite a Manchester accent. But is yeah. but then go the other way, and you've got a Liverpoolian accent. Yeah. And, so, and even within Liverpool, you've got different Scouse accents. Types, yeah. the so it's and the last well, there is that. Yeah. But uh, I don't know where I was going with that, other than it was not one of my favourite episodes of Fat Man on Batman. No. <laughs> Bring Paul Dini back. <laughs> I just. It's Kevin Smith that does it for me. You, you can't listen to Kevin Smith, can you? He used to be funny. He used to be funny, but something happened along the way that now he's trying too hard to be funny and he's just very annoying. Do you not think it's anything to do with the fact that he's a pothead now? Now? It, no, he wasn't actually beforehand. Well, which is funny because Widening Gaia is what... I think Widening Gaia is his best work. I liked Widening Gaia. But he said... Um, with writing that and this is his words he essentially um, like smoked weed every day mm. like got so out of his head um, wrote it woke up the next day having no memory of writing the script and thought it was really good see he maintains that it fuels his creativity and to an extent maybe he's right yeah a, a lot of musicians yeah I don't think truly creative people need any help though but that's just me. What yeah. do I know? I, I don't know anything. I, I write stuff and nobody reads, so what do I know? Apart from you. You should send it to all of our podcast listeners. <laughs> pay for that. I'll do this stuff for free, but writing takes effort, dude. <laughs> they want to read that stuff, they can pay me you for it. send them your novels. They can pay me for it. <laughs> anyway, moving swiftly on. Um, it's Happy Birthday Superman. It is. Is this number five? Five, yeah. five, yes. Our fifth decade. Yes. Is this the 80s? Yeah. The 80s. What, what was the 80s thing? It was swing in 60s. The 70s was the decade that style forgot. What was the 80s? Day Glow. The synthy 80s. Day Glow colours, synth synthesizers. The synthesised neon 80s. Knee pads. No, it wasn't knee pads. What am I th- leg warmers. Yeah. That's what I'm thinking, isn't it? Leg warmers and Madonna. And stuff like that. Doesn't sound like a great album so far. Does it not? <laughs> album, even. <laughs> So yes, so four classic tales, two of which are double-sized, two of which were last-minute substitutions. Were they? Oh, yeah. The last two. 
the last two were last minute substitutions. Oh, they substituting. Uh, this week, I'll mention that in a minute, we're covering Action Comics 544, which is an anniversary of the 45th fabulous year, uh, and anniversary issue 400 from Superman, uh, and then volume 2, Superman issues 10 and 12. Originally, I was going to cover Whose Super Life Is It Anyway? Mm-hmm. which was a Curry Bates story from the early 80s. And when I dug it out and reread it, it was three or four issues long, I forget now. And I thought, I don't really want to do another one where we're going to do the first part of it. Yeah. Because we did that twice last week with Superman Breaks Loose and Who Took the Super Out of Superman, didn't we? Yeah. So we didn't want to do that again. Uh, so I swapped it out for a burn issue. Right. Which I thought was okay, because we were weighted in favour of the first half of the decade. Could you not have done... Instead a, of the burn one. Whatever happened. We could, but that's a two-part story. And, and tons of podcasts have done that. I get I didn't want to do that. Uh, then secondly, I was going to do Action Comics Annual Number 1, Skeeter, by John Byrne and Art Adams. Right. And I read it, and it was still good. I still enjoyed it. But... It but... Wasn't. No, I felt that we'd already done one Batman-Superman team-up. Right. And technically we'd done two, really, because... We covered Superman Batman Annual Number One. I want to say that counted, though. Uh, you can argue that. So okay, but the week after that, for the nineties, yeah. we're doing another Superman Batman team up, and it is just an episode of a Batman Superman team up. Yeah. So I didn't want to do another once because that would have been three Superman Batman team ups we did. Yeah. And like I said, I thought we were too heavily weighted in favour of the first half of the decade instead of the second half of the decade. So I swapped that one out for another John Byrne issue. Because essentially he is the second half of the decade, yeah. for all intents and purposes. So that's that's was my thought processes. So two last minute substitutions, thanks to my ongoing read. But first, it's my favourite part of the show because it requires no effort <laughs> whatsoever on our part. Yes, it's emails now. Pete behind the curtain because we're recording this a little bit earlier than we normally do. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of days, we've only got two emails this week, which is a shame. It yeah. saddens me. I am saddened we'll by have that. one next week. Possibly. Our first email, though, is from Josh Baker. Hello, Josh. It's Hello. just called Feedback, which is good, isn't it? it Short is. and to the point. Mm-hmm. I like that. Hey, guys. Big fan of the show. Thank you very much, Josh. Love the show, Steve. Love the show, Steve. I just called him... Yeah, I did call him Josh. That's right. I thought I called him Joss. I thought for a minute that I was going, dear Josh, we got a letter from Josh Whedon. Awesome. But alas, Josh, not Josh. But it's not an alas. No. It's, it's a positive thing. Scott, over at Two True Freaks, couldn't stop gushing about you, and I trust his opinion. So I thought I'd give you a shot myself, and now I can't get enough of your show. Well, thank you very much. Well, First of all... You can certainly trust Scott to gush over us. Oh! I was just going to say don't mention it, because he'll want a cut of all meagre profits. Ah. And by meagre, I mean... No! Yes. But thank you very much, Scott, for gushing all over us. That's our very own pearl necklace. <laughs> I've just made Mike laugh in insane amounts. <laughs> Um, no, thank you for listening. We do appreciate that. I do acknowledge that sometimes the hard thing is getting people in the door. The problem with free is a lot of people associate free with crap. So I actually guess. just getting people to listen is oft time a problem. pay for a podcast, really? Um, I think people have tried it and it crashed and burned, but I don't know. Even Kevin Smith gives his podcast away for free. Yeah. You have to listen to five minutes worth of coo, coo, the bird at the beginning, don't you? Selling what, stuff. What I got annoyed with at the beginning was, hey, me and Jason News are going to be down in this place signing this, and hey, new coming to man, and hey. Yeah, the first five minutes of the show is yeah. just plugging stuff. Yeah. Which is fair enough, I suppose. He's got to make a living somehow, now that he's not directing anymore. 
So thank you for giving us a chance. Thank you, Scott, for plugging us. I'm not going to say gushing all over us again. That would just be You just did. Yeah. (laughs) Josh's email continues. I've gone back and caught all your archived content before you moved on to the Demanzo Core, and now that you've joined that feed, it's even more convenient for me to download. I'm sure there are some people for whom it isn't more convenient. Yeah. But nobody said that to us yet. So that's nice. I'm sure you'll be happy to know that like Scott and Chris inspired you to get off your ass and make a podcast, you have done the same for me. Please keep watch for my show, The Revolving Dork, dropping soon on Libsyn. But enough about that, let's talk about Hellblazer. Well, before we talk about Hellblazer, we will indeed watch out for your show, and if you want to send us a trailer, we will happily plug it into our show somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it'll it'll lead to listeners, because we have about three, I think. Mm. But that's double what we used Four to Four on a good day. Four on a good day. Yeah. So we're happy about that. Yeah. Four when we cover a big crossover. Or when we do Superman. Or uh, the mainstream character. No, no, it's the big crossovers that, that get the listeners. Fair enough. Or Star Wars. No, Batman. Really? More than Star Wars. Oh, no. fair enough. Anyway, carrying on. <laughs> I've got graphs and charts and PowerPoint presentations yeah. and everything. Actual graphs. Yeah. We're just going to do shows now that just concentrate on big crossovers. We're going to sell out totally. No, we're not going to do that. Next week we're going to do an indie black and white comic when Superman's birthday's <laughs> up. I don't think I have any indie black and white comics apart from Clerks. Yeah. <laughs> and the first Aliens mini. I wouldn't say Scott Pilgrim's that indie anymore. No, well, I suppose technically it does count. We could cover a Scott Pilgrim, I suppose, mm. if you wanted to. You know what I did think would be a what? good idea for a show? Our top five favourite comic book inspired movies. I thought that would be a good show. It means watching ten movies, though. Why? I wouldn't have to watch my top five again. I guess. Do I have five? I don't know, do you? I don't know. I will let you ponder that. I shall. But I, have, I came up with five on the way home from work yesterday. Fair enough. <laughs> when Superman I, 2 would be in, though. When I came up with the idea. Yeah. Neil before Zod, son of Jor-El, was Superman 2. Really? Yeah. That surprised me. See, that's why I'm interested in, in hearing your five now. Because you've surprised me with that one. History of Violence. Don't tell me now. Yes, it was. Yes, it was a comic book inspired movie. That'd be up there. That does count. But yeah, it was very good, that history of violence. Shall we continue with Josh's email while you think about that? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, send us a trailer. Um, Michael Stella Job on your reviews of these books. Thank you very much. Vertigo had never really caught my eye as a comic reader, but your reviews on Preacher and Hellblazer, as well as your Vertigo episode, has made me really rethink my stance on the matter. Um, Not. All of Vertigo is gold, Josh. No. That's what we're going to say to that. Yeah. But every now and again, there is a series that is just sublime. Preacher, Hellblazer. The, the writing's better than the art. Yeah. Why the Last Man? Yes. Uh, is awesome. The Death miniseries is more than Sandman. The Invisibles. Michael thinks The Invisibles. <laughs> that depends on, on what you think of Grant Morrison, I suppose. I'd say the, the Sandman is just as good as Death, if not better. Do the only thing that drags it down, it's similar to when you buy a box set. Mm. Okay. Of anything? Of a TV yeah, show? Yeah, or... a TV show. Right. The TV show is a 12, but there is one episode. That's an 18. That's an 18. The entire <laughs> box set is an 18. That's what it's like for Sandman. It's a good series, but there are some things which just aren't as good that drag the whole series down. Why does an 18 rating drag something down? Because then you can't buy it. I can. You need to buy it. <laughs> isn't that... There's an, ep- there's an episode of Angel in the first season, isn't there? Mm. That's made that entire box at an 18. Yeah. And there's an episode of Farscape in one of that seasons that's made that box at an 18. Mm. Just one episode. Yeah. That sucks, that, doesn't it? As opposed to what Fox have just done with A Good Day to Die Hard. Oh. It was passed uncut with a 15 certificate by the BBFC. All right. And then Fox took it back and said, what do we need to do to get this PG-12? 
Really? And BBFC just said, well, read our report, and they cut the film to get a 12A really? RPG certificate, yeah. Isn't the first one with 18, though? Yeah, and thus, Fox will not be getting my money. Because I have no interest in seeing a PG Die Hard movie. I think the last one was PG, and the last one sucked as well. Yeah. Which was a shame, because I quite like the third one a great deal. Yeah, the third one. I think the third one's brilliant. Anyway, back to Josh's email, which is nothing to do with Die Hard. Andrew, while I will always make sure I listen to any show you appear on... Oh, thank you very much, I appreciate that. Michael is really coming into his own podcasting-wise. Oh, if you, you both keep up with your levels of professionalism... <laughs> and I like the <laughs> <fucking> speech marks. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was great. This show will undoubtedly make its way into the hearts and minds of geek culture the way that CGS and I fanboy have for many others. I truly believe that. Thank you very much. I will take that as a compliment, even though I have never listened to CGS or iFanboy. I've heard of iFanboy. Have you? Yeah. I think I've heard of iFanboy. I think Paul Spataro mentioned it on a re- recent Back to the Bins. Hi, Paul. Hmm. But I've never listened to it. To be honest, you know what they strike me as? What? A podcaster trying to get big by sounding like an Apple brand. Well, I think the iPhone boy guy, I think this is what Paul was talking about, has, has been made something to do with Image Comics. Oh, yeah. He's broken into working for Image, which is why he's stopping podcasting, because it's conflict of interest. Yeah. But I've never listened to either one of those shows. Does that mean he can only do, if he carries on, he could only do Image Comics? Or he would be in the position of having to say, I don't like this Image comic. Yeah. Which may not go down too well with the people that pay salary. Because wasn't that what Mark Wade said? Yeah. Yeah. When he was doing his Boom Comics podcast, which was a shame because that was a good podcast. No, when um, when we went to Thought Bubble. Oh yes, he did a bumper for us, but he wouldn't do one for Fantastic Cast, would he? Yeah, because of working. He's currently writing for Marvel. Yeah, so he can't be seen to endorse a podcast, an unofficial, an unofficial podcast. Yeah, but he he, he could do ours because ours is generic. Do you think? I guess. And it's not specifically about. A specific because we're not really, are we? No. It would be nice to think that one of these celebrities that we got to do the opening tease for us did actually listen to the show. Yeah. I don't think any of them ever have. If Mark Wade replies to us and says that well. would be awesome because we've only ever said glowing things about Mark Wade for the yeah. most part. I think for the most part, yeah. He certainly come off a lot easier than certain other people. Yeah, doesn't he? And by and large, I think we're quite complimentary. We're not. We're not yeah. vitriolic. And we don't attack people personally. No. I'm sure Grant reasons. Morrison's a lovely man in real life. <laughs> but, you know, some of his work leaves me a little cold. But it's not just him. No. I loved Animal Man. Couldn't get behind Arkham Asylum. See, that's where Kevin Smith lost me on Fat Man on Batman. Because he said Arkham Asylum is He just Asylum gushed is over Arkham Batman. Asylum, didn't he? Yeah. I thought Arkham Asylum was totally awful. Oh, yeah. And you don't like it either. No. Which, which is, is, is quite nice. Oh, anyway. But anyway, we got sidetracked again. We Thank did. you, Josh. We appreciate that. Michael appreciates it as well. I do. Because uh, I do think that... Uh, I think I've mentioned it before, but I don't know if I've mentioned it on the show. Michael edited and produced and wrote all of the Avengers vs. X-Men trilogy and all of the Hellblazer duology. And I think you did an excellent job of it. Thank you. Especially the Hellblazer. Yeah. I thought you did a brilliant job with the music in that one. I really do. Well done. I'll have to put extra effort into that one. I know you did, because that was, that was very close to your heart, wasn't it? That one. Um, so much so that we have decided we will cover the last couple of Hellblazers. And the new couple and of Hellblazers. I don't know about that. We may cover Constantine 1. Yeah. And see what we think about it. So yeah, we will... Just to sleep dark. 
if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> Best of luck with your courage of the Superman birthday. Listen to the first two episodes of the celebration, and I'm loving it. Superman, like most DC, has only slightly interested me these days, but I may start looking back at the comics of the past, Golden Age specifically. Yes, please do. Because yeah. Golden Age Superman kicks all the ass. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. In many cases. Doesn't even kick it sometimes, he... Just chucked oh, it out of a window. <laughs> well, that's all I have for now. You keep recording them, I'll keep listening. Well, that sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah, yeah. Josh, mother-loving baker. Thank you. I think it is good to love your mother as well. I, I think that's an admirable quality in an offspring. It is. To be honest with you. Thank you, Josh. We do appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That was very kind. If you please email in again. Our next email, Superman Celebration Part 2, is from Tom Panarese. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom, Tom does the Taking Flight podcast. Which is 17 different kinds of awesome. A Nightwing podcast. A Nightwing and Robin podcast. That. Indeed. It's a very good show. Is it? I do. I like that a lot, yeah. Hello, Leylands. <coughs> Hello, Tom. Hello, Panarises. <laughs> I may have the answer to your question regarding the first appearance of Superman's cape pouch. Ooh. Oh, I'll sit comfortably for this. This is good. Yeah. Only person who got in touch with us about this. Yeah. So Mark Wade mustn't listen. <laughs> I looked through my copy of the Encyclopedia of Comic Book Heroes Volume 3, which covers all things Superman. And in the entry on the Man of Steel, there is a section about his costume, which covers where the material from his suit came from, as well as where the indestructible super glasses that he wears as Clark Kent come from. In Action Comics issue 313 from June 1964, Clark's street clothes are described as being made from super compressible material that enable him to tuck them into a secret pouch of his cape. But the idea of him hiding his clothes in his cape comes up much earlier. Here's what it says. In the early text of the Superman Chronicles, Superman is described as concealing his Clark Kent clothing beneath his cloak, World's Finest Issue 1, Summer of 1941, or underneath his cape, Superman Issue 30, September-October of 1944, whenever he goes into action in his Superman identity. By the mid-1950s, however, the hiding place for Clark Kent's street clothes has begun to be described as a hidden pocket inside Superman's cape, World's Finest Issue 68, January-February 1954, or more specifically as a secret pouch in the lining of his cape, Action Comics 252, May 1959. The encyclopedia then goes on to quote Action Comics 252. Moments later, the shy reporter becomes Superman, Man of Steel. With one squeeze of his mighty fingers, he compresses Clark Kent's resilient clothing and special fiber shoes into a compact ball. The next moment, Superman thrusts his compressed Clark Kent clothes into a secret pouch in the lining of his cape. Cool. I'm not sure that this is the definitive answer, but when I heard you and Michael ask about the cave pouch, I have to admit I got a little excited, because I actually had a reason to look something up in a reference book about comics. And I don't know about you, but spontaneous research just really gets me excited. I love doing stuff like that. Yeah. So you're not alone, Mr. Tom. Mr. Tom Panarese. Mr. Tom. That was a different thing, wasn't it? That was a John Farr TV show. And a book, I believe. Goodbye, Mr. Tom. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for that. I looked everywhere for that and could not find it. Yeah. So the internet's let me down. But a book... It's, came yeah. through with the knowledge. These Kindles and iPads. Mm, what does that say? Mm. A book <laughs> came through with the knowledge. The internet let me down. Thanks, Tom. I greatly appreciated that. That was fascinating. Very interested in that. I wish we had that information. What yeah. we should do now, we should take that bit that I just said in the big voice and go back and edit it into re-edit the show it. and re-upload it and then pretend that we knew all along. <laughs> edit this email out there. And then we could pull a George Lucas and say, oh, we knew all the time. <laughs> yeah. We totally knew that Anakin Skywalker was Darth Vader's brother. A special edition episode. Yeah, special edition where we fix all our mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> it looked like we knew it. 
we go back and fix every episode of the mistake. We'd be here all year. <laughs> um, Tom continues. I have to say that I have really been enjoying the series of episodes so far. I don't have a huge collection of Superman comics, but I've always had a love and appreciation for the Man of Steel, and love that you were covering stories that remind us all why reading comics was so much fun when we were kids, and why Superman himself has always been a great character to read, even if there are moments that really stretch the boundaries of suspension of disbelief. I really think there are some points in these 60s stories, Tom, where it's bludgeoning it into unconsciousness rather than suspension of disbelief, but okay. For instance, Tom continues, a chunk of the planet broke off and was encased in an ur bubble, and Jorel just happened to have a huge hunk of lead handy? Really? Yeah, we thought that was dubious, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> But I guess some things you just accept, like Clark and Lois finding the station wagon in the Arctic. I'd like to think that Clark simply <laughs> borrowed the car from the Fortress of Solitude's night janitor and did intend to return it, except he forgot. And when the janitor wanted to press charges, Superman flew around the Earth a few thousand times so that all would be forgiven and forgotten. Mm-hmm. That's plausible. I like the idea of the janitor being stranded in the fortress. Oh, Who stole my car? On. You're in the middle of Iceland! Who stole my car? You can fly, Assad. <laughs> See, at that point he couldn't. At that point he's lost his powers. But the janitor wouldn't have known that. No, no. That's, that's fair enough. But what, why are you station wagon then? Would it not be like... A, well, we discussed this. Four or a, well, or well a truck, you'd think so, yeah. wouldn't you? But we also discussed, did Jorel make a station wagon? Yeah. Because he thought of everything else, didn't he? Such as poetry. Yeah. And an S-shield that comes off. Yes. As a minor inconvenience. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Uh, at any rate, these are fun, fun episodes, and I can't wait for the rest of the series. All the best, Tom. Well, thank you very much for that, Tom. That was greatly appreciated. Mm-hmm. We like knowing where Superman's cape pouch comes from. Uh, as I said, that's it for emails. I will click the refresh button on the off chance somebody has sent one why we've been talking, but alas, no. Only an email from me <laughs> to remind me to do something. Only an email to you saying it's okay if no one emails. <laughs> Only an email from myself <laughs> saying what a great show we do. <laughs> like Stanley used to do in all Marvel comics. And, and deliberately seed future episodes. Dear Andrew and Michael, I think you do an excellent show and would greatly appreciate if you covered Troika at some point in the future. Well, it's funny you should say that, and Andreas Lilandai. We will be covering Troika in the very near future. Stay tuned, true believer. That totally works, doesn't it? It does, yeah. I'm going to start doing that. I totally believe that alias. <laughs> Andreas Lelande. <laughs> and Nikolai Lelande. Like <laughs> oh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. It's Megacon from March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Megacon is the Southeast's largest comic book, science fiction, fantasy, anime, gaming, toys, multimedia event. The showroom has over 110,000 square feet of exhibitor space. Meet your favorite comic book artists, get autographs from your favorite celebrities, enter a costume contest, visit continuous anime viewing rooms, view the indie film festival, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. One-day tickets are $24.49 in advance, $30 at the door. Or go for all three days for just $58.04 in advance or $60 at the door. I, Scott Gardner, will be there Saturday, March 16th from open to close, wandering the floor in my Two True Freaks t-shirt. Again, that's Megacon. 
March 15th through the 17th, 2013, at the Orange County Convention Center, Hall D. That's 9800 International Drive, Orlando, Florida. Be there. Gathered together from the far reaches of the internet are assembled a network of podcasts dedicated to the first and greatest superhero, Superman. Superman. Superman Podcast Network is dedicated to covering all aspects of the Superman legend, featuring the thrilling adventures of Superman, Golden Age Superman, the Superman Fan Podcast, Superman in the Bronze Age, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman Podcast, the new 52 Adventures of Superman, Superman Forever Radio, I've got a few things to say about Superman. The Kara's World Podcast. The Superman Vidcast. The world's best podcast. And Radio Kale from supermanhomepage.com. Join hosts Michael Bradley, John Wilson, Billy Hogan, Charlie Niemeyer, J. David Weeder, Jeffrey Taylor, Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, Danny Sapp, Cayman Stoll, I'm Isaac, I'm Adam, Dave Yunus, and co host Scotty V. At supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Uh, my uh, plane was late, and and uh, I, I had to rush right here for the interview. So, so I. Uh... And you are. Oh, uh, uh, Clark, uh, Clark Kent. Well, Mr. Clark Kent, it says here you haven't had a lot of experience. Well, I, I didn't get paid for the work I did, but. Uh... Perry, some Joker has stolen a tank and is heading toward the downtown bank, and. Miss Lane, doors are for knocking on. Yes, but but this is important. Uh, excuse me, but, uh, well, if I come up with an exclusive angle on this bank situation, uh, would you give me a job? Over my dead body. If you outscoop Lois, you're hired. But this is my story. Miss Lane, you have a job to do. Are there any more questions? Uh, Miss Lane, uh, wait for me. And we're back. Michael is uncharacteristically not eating tonight. No, I'm not. I mean, hey, I can't eat if you really want me to. It's up to you. I've got a big preamble to do. You can munch your way through that if you want to. As the 1970s turned into the 1980s, it was business as usual for the Man of Steel, certainly for the first part of the decade. But the 80s would be the very definition of a decade of two halves. The mammoth success of Superman the movie led to an inevitable sequel, the titled Superman 2, arriving in 1980 to much fanfare, critical and commercial acclaim and controversy. The original movie's director, Richard Donner, was relieved of microphone duties following prolonged and heated disagreements with the movie's producers, the father and son team of Alexander and Ilya Salkin, and was replaced by Richard Lester, who brought a much more jokey turn to the proceedings. The controversy came because Donner had filmed large swathes of Superman 2 while Superman the movie was being made, and as such would have been allowed a co-director credit as per Directors Guild law. The Salkins chose to refilm portions of the movie, removing such crucial elements such as a further appearance by Marlon Brando as Jor-El and the, some would say, rather pivotal scene of just how Superman regained his powers. Nevertheless, the movie was still a success and in 1983, Superman 3 debuted followed by Supergirl in 1984 and Superman 4 The Quest for Peace in 1987. 
The Salkins would also milk the franchise further with a Superboy television series that debuted in 1988 and would be successful enough to run for four seasons. There would also be a new animated version from Ruby Spears. Despite an excellent score by Star Trek and Family Guy composer Ron Jones that incorporated elements of John Williams' work for Superman the movie and the involvement of comics grad Marv Wolfman, the series would not be as successful, lasting only 13 episodes. The comics, however, were in a rut. The success of the movies had not led to a boost in sales for the comic books, despite some excellent stories. Some personal favourites of mine include the miraculous return of Jonathan Kent from Action Comics 507, whose super life is it anyway from Superman issues 380 to 382, Jim Starlin's run on DC Comics Presents in issues 26 through 29, and all three DC Comics Presents annuals. British writer Alan Moore would also write two excellent tales. DC Comics presents issue 85, The Jungle Line, a high-concept team-up with Swamp Thing, and Superman Annual 11, What Do You Get for the Man Who Has Everything? Editor Julius Schwartz would continue to steer the comics and Action Comics 544, the character's 45th anniversary, and Superman issue 400 would both be milestones within the industry. The during new adventures of Supergirl and the new adventures of Superboy also gave a new lease of life to those characters, and Marv Wolfman and artist Gil Kane would give the Metropolis Marvel a shot in the arm in a well-regarded run in Action Comics. After issue 400, however, it seemed that Schwartz was going through the motions, biding time for retirement and using up all of his old inventory stock. Appearances by the irreverent ambush bug caused a few titters, but it was clear the man of tomorrow needed a kick in the pants. The kick would be twofold. It was decided that the entire DC Universe would be restarted and the multiverse, which housed different eras of the same character, for example an Earth 2 Superman who was older and had married Lois Lane, and who was a tad different from his younger single Earth 1 counterpart, would be destroyed. Henceforth there would only be one Earth. Schwartz was determined to go out with a bank. Whilst the crisis on infant Earth, the comic book series charged with telling the stories of these sweeping changes would have a profound impact on Superman with the death of Supergirl, the final ever Earth-1 Superman story would have to be special. Schwartz tapped Alan Moore, whose two issues mentioned above had been incredibly popular with both audiences and critics, and whose Watchmen series was making considerable waves, was tasked with writing Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, a two-part tale running in Superman issues 423 and Action Comics 583. It closed out the era in fine style. Superman was then handed over to an all-new creative team, in this case UK-born, Canadian-raised, but now US citizen, John Byrne. Byrne was arguably the hottest creator of the 80s, mostly at Marvel, where his detailed art had reinvigorated both the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, and Byrne kicked off this revitalised Superman with a six-issue miniseries entitled The Man of Steel. In it, Byrne retold the origin from the ground up and made changes that some considered blasphemous. No longer was Clark the disguise. This Clark was raised as a down-to-earth Kansas farm kid who knew nothing of his Kryptonian heritage. Likewise, Gone 2 was Superboy from the mythos, this Clark never adopting the Superman codename until adulthood, as in the 1978 movie. Also taken from the film, the idea that Lois gave him the name Superman, the idea being that a simple guy like Clark would never choose to be called something so ostentatious. 
Lex Luthor was given a makeover too. Gone was the scheming scientist out for revenge, and in his place a much more 80s Gordon Gecko-inspired character who positively oozed the greed-is-good sentiment of the era. The relationship with the Batman was also redefined into a more antagonistic one rather than old chums, and Lois was now, as she had been in the beginning, a strong, independent woman who had thrived in a profession populated by men. Of course, long-term fans knew Byrne hadn't really changed very much at all. He'd merely returned the strip and the character to his origins. The last son of Krypton was alone once more, and he'd never been so human. When I said this was a decade of two halves, I meant it. The first half of the decade is, for all intents and purposes, still deep into the Bronze Age. Which is not to say there weren't some classic tales printed in this time. Action Comics 544 came out on March 24th, 1983, with a June cover date and was celebrating 45 years of the comic. 45 years. That's 30 years ago. I was ten when I bought this. Ten! Do you know, I don't feel much older than twelve now. (laughs) It boasts a simply superb cover by Gil Kane and Dick Giordano, with the anniversary logo at the top in gold ink, with Superman's face in pencils looking positively aghast at the prospect of, as the cover promises, the cosmos-quaking origins of the new Luthor and Brainiac. Below the Man of Steel's concerned face, Luther, in era-appropriate purple and green jumpsuit, morphs into a purple and green battle armour, and Brainiac transmutes from his bald, green, pink-clad self into an altogether more terrifying cyborg-like android. The pencils of Superman's face are excellent, Gil Kane being a much underrated Superman artist in my opinion, and this comic is square-bound and chock-full of goodness. I bought this off the stands, and it pretty much cemented my opinion of what an anniversary issue should be. What do you think of the cover, Michael? Do you want me to hold it in a specific way? It's an anniversary cover. And all the good and bad that that entails. Yeah. Why? What do you not like about that? Other than it's, you know, yellow. Because it's not the yellow, it's the transforming characters. What do you not like about it? Well, for a start, you can't really see the old selves. Yeah, so basically you're saying if they'd moved Battle Armor Luther a bit more to the right and Androidy Brainy Head Brainiac a little more to the left, Skittlehead Brainiac. Because mm. he does look like you've got Skittles for brains here, oh, doesn't he? At least show themselves transforming or changing or whatever, because they're just like just two Luthors and two Brainiacs, really. That's true. That's a valid point and one that I hadn't considered. I think my thing with this is obviously there's the nostalgia appeal that I bought this yeah. off the shelf. But there's also, I always love that anniversary logo in gold. Mm. I love it on the top of Superman 400, which I think suffers from not being square bound. Yeah. But I love it on the top of Detective Comics 526 and Brave and the Bold 200. I just like that anniversary logo. That just stands out, and I love it. about it on an anniversary gold ink. Yeah, but it's the gold ink, though. Yeah. That was special back then. And it's nothing... Yeah. Too flamboyant. Yeah, it's and it's but the, you look at the comic and it's thick and it's square and you think, wow, this is cool. Mm. Yeah, but fair enough. But also Gil Kane's pencils of Superman's first was brilliant. Yeah. You can actually tell that's Gil Kane. Is but, that just yeah. pencils and not inked over? Yeah, it just looks like the pencils and has not right. been inked. Whereas the figures of Brainiac and Luthor, both old and new, do look like Dick Giordano rather than Gil Kane. Yeah. So seeing as I prefer Gil Kane's work to Dick Giordano's which is not to say I don't like Dick Giordano because I do I just like Gil Kane's offbeat art I prefer the pencil Superman face which I think is awesome 
there's a part of me that would love to see what that looks like in white all yeah. the colours still exactly the same as they are but the background's just white so the pencils are on a white piece of paper oh, not just on its own yeah I'd love to see that on its own but I don't know. I don't know if he drew that on it. So there must be a reason that it's not inked, other than it. It does look pretty awesome. Maybe it's two images put together. It could be. That's true. Could be two different images stick together. Uh, there are two full-length tales in this comic. The first, entitled Luther Unleashed, was written by Curry Bates, with art by Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson. It cost a whopping dollar fifty in America, two dollars in Canada. Poor Canadians. Getting screwed again. And 50 whole pennies. That's, 50p! That's pretty cheap. That's awesome, man. 50-page comic. 50p for a 50-page comic. It's fantastic. Absolutely love it. It's synopsis time! After another battle with Lex Luthor, Superman must take off to avert another catastrophe. But given Luthor's burly conscious state, he should be able to return pretty soon and drop Luthor off in solitary confinement. Luther, despite his injuries, crawls from his downed craft as it explodes. He activates a hypersonic signal, and another robot, the RX-99, arrives swiftly and spirits Lex away. Back at his lure, RX-99 places Luther in a spacecraft that launches him into space. Before passing out, Luther sets the automatic pilot for Lexor and the arms of his beloved wife, Adora. See what they did with that name? Oh, I adore her. Adora. Clever, I don't know. I thought so. Superman returns to the area but finds Luther gone. He takes his frustration out on the secret lure that he managed to track back to and destroys the facility. RX-99, in his death throes, manages to launch a probe unseen by Superman that initiates a Empire Strikes Back program. No, just a Strike Back program. On Lexor, Luther is recovering with news that his wife had bore him a son and decides he will stay on Lexor, a new man. He addresses the populace and tells them such. And over the next few weeks bestows scientific advancement upon scientific advancement on the people of Lexor. But Lex is not happy. His all-consuming hatred of Superman grows with every day and he finds he cannot live in peace as long as there is a Superman somewhere in the galaxy. His temper tantrum causes a small landslide and Luther discovers the lab of an ancient civilization far in advance of Lexorian science. On Earth, the Strike Back program initiated by RX-99 has cut off Metropolis from the rest of the planet and as Superman battles to destroy it, Luther watches from Lexor. He realises that it's only a matter of time before Superman journeys to Lexor to find him. Sure enough, Superman deduces that the device causing the cutting off of Metropolis is of Luthorian origin and vows to stop him. Several weeks later, Luther has built a Netrorod that he says has prevented Lexor from achieving critical mass and blowing up. A few days later, a mysterious armour-clad figure starts terrorising Lexor, destroying shipping and cargo. Lex is asked to help, but Adora suspects that something is wrong. Three days later, Superman, protected from the red sun rays of Lexor, arrives to arrest Lex. He swoops in and flies off quickly, but Lex deduces that the protection will only last so long and effects an escape. Lex escapes to a nearby cave and emerges wearing the armour of the mysterious Marauder. The fight between the two takes place in the sky, with Superman's powers weakening by the second due to the red sun. A blast from Luther's power suit, however, strikes the Nitra Rod and causes a chain reaction that destroys the planet. Superman leaves, believing Lex to have been killed with the planet, but Lex survives. Blaming Superman for the destruction, he reveals that he has only just begun to hate. <laughs> Musical sting! Because, you know, that's important. Um, pages 1 through 3. A 
an epic opening. Superman states that he has never come so close to taking a human life as he has in this clash between Luthor and himself. And Luthor is more beaten and broken than we've ever seen him. This would obviously be a lot more violent in an up-to-date oh, yeah. comic. But as far as 1983 goes, this was, this, was, this was quite violent. In fact, Luthor is only still alive as another more serious crisis distracted the action ace at the precise moment as Superman believes he is really down. For his part, Luther is mortified that he was taken out of the battle by his own weaponry and is only alive at all because of Superman. Whilst we don't see the battle prior to this, pages two and three are a double-page spread in which the title of the story has hollow lettering in which the key moments of the battle are played out. With an opening like this, the story that follows has to be epic. I like the two-page spread. The two-page spread is great. I like how Luthor's climbing into it as well. Yeah, which is awesome. I just I like that device that they've started at the end of the battle because let's be honest we don't really need to see another Superman Lex Luthor no. battle and then they just fill in all the blanks in the lettering of the title mm. it's it's just really well laid out and really well done and the, I like that the figures in the lettering are inked in red because I always wonder was that done in printing or did Murphy Anderson ink them with red pen or oh, how does that work yeah well, it was, it's, it's an excellent two-page spread. On page five, Luther has blown up his shit behind him and almost died in it. And he activates his robots, the RX-99. I love that he's programmed his robots to be sycophantic to him. Mm. It is only logical you should feel proud, Master. Proud of the foresight encompassed by the incomparable capacity of your genius. What an egotist. Yeah. And he does just get worse. I would... We need a Lex Luthor Doctor Doom meetup <laughs> because I don't think that that comic could contain their egos. Mm. There isn't; a, it would have to be a treasury-sized one. Oh yeah, to contain just both the of them. Yeah, just for the ego alone. On the page before that, yeah, is Lex's arm dislocated? It looks like his arm's dislocated. Yeah, and it looks like he's he's hobbling, like he may have a broken leg. Mm. Well, this is what I was saying about this. Superman's not pulled any punches this time. No. It looks like he's really punched the crap out of him. Yeah. And he's probably not really done that much, given that he's Superman. Mm. But, yeah, it, it, he's genuinely hurting here, isn't he? Mm. Which I thought was quite impressive. That's why I'm a bit confused about Luthor's logic, though. See, he goes straight to his ship, which yes. takes him to Lexor, and what we're told is a matter of Earth days, rather than just get med medical attention and then go to his ship. I can understand him not going for medical attention because he knows Superman's after him. For whatever reason, yeah. Superman is madder than he's ever been but at he, this point. he doesn't even get medical attention on board the ship. No, that's what I mean. It would have been nice if uh, RX-99 had been a medical droid and patched him up a bit. Yeah. Or, like you said, there'd been some kind of medical facility on the rocket ship. Because he's, he's just been injured with what we can assume is a broken leg and a dislocated arm. At the very it least, it looks like he's got dislocated arms, yeah. doesn't it? And he is hobbling, because if you go back to the double-page spread, he's holding his leg... Not the double-page spread, sorry, page four. He is holding his leg as if he can't walk on it. Mm. But it mustn't be broken, because he is bending it on the, next la on the next panel. But either way, he is injured. He's very badly yeah. injured. Page six... Uh, Luther's rocket ship journeys to Lexo. Uh, it's got some wonderful foreshadowing. The RX-99 points out that Luther, who is disappointed by having to flee, may find peace and regeneration away from Earth. Which I thought was quite cool. Mm. 
There's quite a lot of foreshadowing. Yeah, it's, I thought this was exceptionally well written. It's another one of those stories that I think puts lie to the idea that Superman's boring and Lex Luthor's a two-dimensional character mm. prior to the Burn reboot or Gene Ackman getting old of him or whatever. They've just not read enough good Superman comics to be able to say that, if they're saying that. On page seven, Luther arrives on Lexo. Uh, and as we've pointed out, Adora seems to be an apt name for a wife. Uh, we're introduced to Lexo. We were introduced to Lexo, although it was unnamed, in the showdown between Luther and Superman, which we covered a couple of shows ago. In that story, we first met the inhabitants of the Red Sun planet that would come to revere Luther as a hero. Luther would journey to Lexo, finally named in Superman 168, April 1964, and Luther married Adora in Action Comics 318 in November of 1964. Another little history lesson. Uh, on page 8... We see an exceptionally angry Superman who's livid that Luther got away and literally turns Lex's secret lure into rubble. Again, we see lie being put to the idea, as I just mentioned, that Superman's boring and difficult to write for. Bates makes Superman's anger palpable, and the so-called goody-goody Superman takes all his anger out on Lex's multi-million dollar equipment, trashing his base of operations. He buries it, doesn't he? Mm. But I think that's what let this issue down somewhat. Why? Because one of the things that I didn't like about this issue was that Superman and Lex were written in such a way that the roles were reversed, so that we're rooting for Lex in this, but I actually dis... I, I won't say despise, but I really, really disliked how Superman was written. He's uncharacteristically violent. He's... Um, he just acts without thinking. And I thought he was very uncharacteristically written in this issue. See, I think... I didn't like how his anger was written in this, because he seemed too angry and too... maybe idiotic to think of how it could have gone out. He just thinks angrily and just rushes straight into everything. See, I think inadvertently, though, you've hit on the point of the story. The whole point of this story is that Brian Azzarello thing, that Lex would be a decent guy without Superman. And I personally think you're essentially getting this entire story from Lex's point of view. Yeah. You're seeing Superman as Lex sees him. Um, I have nothing to base this on. Mm. I mean, in many ways, your criticism is valid, which is why I like doing this show with you, because I'd never considered that. Yeah. But as the story goes on, we realise Lex is not a hero. The, the twist at the end where we realise he's essentially been terrorising his own people for his own petty gains. It wasn't that much of a... No, not for us. to us, because when the guy blowing the place up is wearing the same armour that Lex is wearing on the cover... Yeah, that, 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 yeah, that kind of gave it away to us. Yeah. But the point of the story was that Lex Luthor would not have been altruistic without Superman. He's petty and vindictive whether Superman's there or not. Yeah. Which is why series like Brian Azzarello's Luther, to me, just missed the point. And you can go too far in making your villain relatable and likeable. Yeah. There has to be a point where you pull back and go, wait a minute, he's still the bad guy. Which I always thought the Sopranos did really well. At no point did I ever like Tony Soprano. But you didn't utterly dislike him. I didn't him. utterly dislike him and could relate to many of his problems. But you were still aware But that ultimately, he was yeah, guy. you're still aware that he's the bad guy. Even though the show's about him, mm. the show in that case is about a bad guy. And that's, that's the kind of thing they need to do with Lex. That is, as we get into the noughties, they go too far the other way of making Lex likeable. Yeah. And forget that he's got to be a bad guy. 
I mean, you'll see that when if we cover some of the president-elect stuff. Mm. But anyway, but a valid point. I, I, I do agree with you about Superman in this. Um, page eleven. We've had a lovely little scene between Lex and Adora and his, his little kid. And while it's sweet and all that Luther has a hot wife and a cute son, he still has the crowds refer to him with a Hail Luther! <laughs> a benevolent dictatorship is still a dictatorship. I like how he still wears a uh, purple and green. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's got his casual duds on. And his purple and green. Oh, which... even with his kid, he doesn't play with his kid. He uses some... He uses device a device to, to, to play with um, whatever his child is. He Lex Jr. Mm. or something. I on, on page 12 as well, where, where he's making... He's, he's sculpting the Superman face. Like Mount Rushmore. Yeah. Have you, have you noticed that whenever bad guys do this, you know, they, they make a sculpture just to destroy it, they always perfectly make it. None of them are ever bad at sculpting. None of them are ever bad artists. No. I mean, well, it's the same in TV shows. Whenever they sketch something, yeah, it's, it's always it's perfect. It's rendition. Yeah, it's, I mean, they did it in Angel, mm. but they established that Angel did have some artistic ability. Yeah. Didn't they? So I thought, alright, I'll give Wasn't you a pass it, on in that. in Spider-Man they had Alex Ross to do the designs? Yeah, no it, drew. no, it was J. Scott Campbell, not Alex Ross. Oh, right, was it? Alex Ross did some designs for it. And then he did the opening credits to Spider-Man 2. Yeah. But the actual sketches that Peter does in the, the film are J. Scott Campbell. Right. But yeah, it is a proper artist. So Peter's a great artist, apparently. Yeah. As well as a great... As well as a scientific genius. Um, yes, you are right. He does manage to make an excellent sculpture of Superman's very recognisable face. Whereas if I did that, The Rock would just be like, be like a chicken scratch. Yeah. <laughs> Superman! Can you not tell? <laughs> Draw an S on it. My artistic temperament is insulted. Artistic licensing. Yeah, just to a bit. the nth degree. As long as that was a kiss curl. <laughs> Superman, deal with it. But, that being said, I did think this page had some very interesting philosophical questions. Luther muses if his obsessive hatred of Superman has made him what he is, or has Superman only brought forth the evil, sadistic personality that was already there? I thought that this was a fascinating topic of discourse and a real way of giving Luther some wonderful character development. He's self-aware enough to know that his hatred of Superman is all-consuming and could actually bring about his downfall, but his ego believes he will ultimately emerge triumphant. He also seems well aware that this confrontation sorry, will only end when one of them is dead. He doesn't. There's no other way this can go, as far as he's concerned, and he seems quite all right with that. His ego won't let him think that he will lose. Yeah. But if the ultimate final confrontation does end with him dying, he seems like he's comfortable with it. So in a way, it's, it contrasts and reflects the Batman Joker yeah. relationship. Well, Essentially, yeah. Um, again, Luther's not a two-dimensional bad guy in no. the Bronze Age, and arguably in the Silver Age. In my opinion. On page 14, Adora's wearing Batgirl's skirt. <laughs> Did you notice that? I have now. <laughs> That's totally Batgirl's skirt, isn't it? Yeah. Did Lex take it with him? Maybe. Maybe. On page 13. Oh, yeah. I find it funny how when, when we see Metropolis here, it's a perfect circle. The city forms a perfect circle surrounded by a forest. Uh, well, woodland and such, yeah. Maybe some small towns on the outskirts. But it's and what a, looks like a castle. Yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect circle of Metropolis. Yeah. I like the idea of Metropolis, which was in the Super Mario Returns game, where it's an island. And it's multi-level. Well, isn't it based on Manhattan Island? 
Yeah, but the there's an island on its own, and there's different layers to it. You had, um, like, on a massive cliff, you had the main city, and then all your slumps and all that down mm. below. And there was a few islands off, and it's just in the middle of nowhere. See, I never played that game, because you told me it was awful. It is awful, but oh, right. I do like Metropolis in that game. Right. But see, the perfect Superman game is waiting to be made. It is. Isn't it? The perfect Green Lantern game is waiting to be made. That's true. You can do it now, because you have those things where you can play it with your mind. You can play video games with your mind. They've created it for a while, they've just never perfected it, but you can play, they've made a headband thing where you can control things with your mind. I could kill you with my brain. See, how that would work is, you play it with the controller, just like any other game, you mm. control Green Lantern, but his ring you control with your mind. That's good at it. Mm. Anyway, back to this comic. Yeah. <laughs> Some interesting character beats on page 14. Luther seems genuinely sorry that the strike back program has been run, but his concern is really that Superman will come hunting for him on Lexo. He seems sorry that he'll be taken away from his son and wife, but his prime concern is himself. Mm. Do you notice that? So though, although we are getting this story that is essentially Luther as hero, so the story is from Luther's point of view. He sees himself as the hero of his own story, which everybody does. But he still talks as though he's the villain, and we recognise that. Yeah, and he's still self-centred. Mm. He puts himself above his wife and child. But he sees that as mm. normal. He sees that as perfectly acceptable. Mm. Why would you squander his genius to save a woman and a child? Yeah. Which just shows how out of touch the man is. For all his scientific genius and his desire to stay on Lexo, his big downfall is he's selfish which essentially answers the questions he pondered in the previous pages. Mm. He's self-enough aware to know that this confrontation will not end well for either one of them, but he's not smart enough to realise that his self-preservation above all else is costing him what could be happiness Yeah, if he just ignored Superman and stayed on Lexa. Well, maybe he is aware of that, but it's his pride that puts it aside. See... I think Superman's just the catalyst for his anger. Luther would be a scumbag if Superman were there or not. But he wouldn't be as big as a scumbag. He would be the Superman from the post-crisis before Superman showed up. Mm. He would be hiding in the shadows. Well, I also think that if it wasn't for Superman, he'd be a street-level criminal. Whereas because of Superman, he's got all these gadgets and city-destroying Do you, you not think he, surely his intellect would still make him a little bit above... Well, yeah, but it wouldn't be as... Or maybe he just wouldn't that. get his hands dirty. Yeah. Maybe he'd just be the guy who builds the equipment and runs everything. He'd make his twirly moustache generals do his work. Yeah. Or they'll get sliced in half. So without Superman, no one would ever know it was him that was pulling the strings. He'd just take his 10% or whatever. Yeah. yeah all right. Fair dues. Uh, page 19. I did like the Adara, Adora, Adema, Enema, um, suspected... <laughs> That it was Lex that was up to this. Yeah. Far too often in these kinds of stories... Just believe everything. Yeah, we're just expected to believe the wife's completely unaware of whatever the husband is up to, which makes them out to just be incredibly dumb. <laughs> Adora suspecting Luther is in some way connected to the mysterious marauder shows that she's intelligent, just with questionable testing men. Well, I also like how it's Luthor's pride uh, in himself mm. that gives it away. Because he's big grin and relaxation that gives it away to her. Yeah, his smugness. Yeah. Yeah. To be fair, at this point, unless you've looked at the cover, yeah. the reader's not aware of Lex's involvement. But like you say, his smug grin at the top of that page has kind of we, given it away. We do, kind of. We've kind of suspected that it's him. 
Yes. Page 20, in a very subtle touch, foreshadowing the end of the story. Again, like Michael said, there's a lot of foreshadowing in this. Uh, Lex swears on the lives of Adora and Lex Jr. Mm. That won't go well for him, will it? Um, page 20. One of, one of the things that... There's a slight little thing I found a bit confusing with this, that if Luthor's ship got into Lex or in a matter of days, mm-hmm. and um, Superman destroyed the base, yes. which we were told happened... Um, the day Lex left, yes. which was days before he arrived. Yes. Right? So he destroyed the base, the robot activated the shield around Metropolis, and the Superman left Earth on the day, same day Luthor left. No, he doesn't. No. Because the RX-99 has activated the Strike Back program, yeah. which he activated as Luthor left. Right. No, he didn't. He activated as Superman destroyed the base. Which was the same day Lex left, because he left just after. Because he says that... Yes. Right. So that's kept him busy for a couple of days. Right. But he would still be days behind Lex. Because of what we're told and how long it took Lex to get to Lexo. Maybe time moves differently on Lexo. So so why is Superman (laughs) only just arriving if he's also really fast flying? Um... Yeah, okay. (laughs) Got nothing for that. I did maybe Lexo time moves differently the proximity to the sun and all that stuff so he's had a couple of days there where only one day has passed on earth or something like that I don't know Superman does seem to take his time yeah. to be fair given that he's not on earth he knows he's left earth where do you think he's gone <laughs> Superman I know you're not the world's greatest detective like Batman is, but it wouldn't take a great deal to figure that out. Mm. One wouldn't have thought. But there could be a thing as well that Superman's not bothered about going there because of the red sun radiation. Oh, and he's that. like... If Luthor's not on the planet, he's not a big of a threat. Yeah, I can take care of some other business and go and get him later. Mm. Maybe If he thinks he's safe, and I lull him into a false sense of security, mm. when I show up and haul his ass back to Earth... You may not be expecting me. Which I think is a bit naive. Of course, Luther's expecting him. But. Uh, page 22. Apart from the ending, this is Lex's story, as you've pointed out. Superman is mostly an off-panel threat. Of course, given that this story is all from Lex's point of view, a dunderhead could take it as proof that Lex is just misunderstood. And Luther's actions are all Superman's fault. So subtle is the characterisation of Luther in this story. But no professional writer would be dumb enough to make a mistake and write a story like that, would they? Of course not. Brian Azarello's Luther miniseries. <laughs> Luther's the good guy. Superman's a threat. Is it? Yes. I do like the bottom of um, page 22. Or is it? Yeah, page yeah. 22. Where Superman does a backflip and then carries on flying. And then carries on flying because he's just been knocked out of the sky mm. by one of Lexi's ray beam things that he seems to have a, a lot of. Uh, I thought the art on pages 22 through, through 24 was just fantastic. The aerial fight scenes are brilliant between Lex and Superman, of a kind again that we still haven't seen pulled off in live action. Yeah. Which is, I'm hoping they're going to be able to do something like this in Man of Steel in summer. If it's interesting to do that. If it's interesting, yeah. Uh, Lex busting free of the mountain and then threatening Superman and the people of Lexor again shows Luther is corrupt and vile. He refers to the Lexorians as maggots, and they, they turn against him. Mm. What a doofus. <laughs> he could have been, you know, alright here. This could have been it. Yeah, because Superman can't stick around for a long time because of the red sun, yeah. so he's got to get the hell out of Dodge pretty quickly. How did Superman find him so quickly? He's Superman. It's a planet, you know. Yeah, he's Superman. 
Because he's from Krypton. He can scan it from a distance, presumably, <laughs> as he's coming out of super warp or whatever. Supplies. Engage. Super warp speed. Engage nine. Super warp speed, Mr. Scott. <laughs> he's got a little Scotty under his cape. <laughs> <laughs> they can't attack no more, Captain. Me neither. <laughs> Quite funny. <laughs> um, page 26. I did like that Luther wasn't lying about the new Netra rod. Yeah. He, that was genuine. There was a genuine threat to the planet of Laxo and he genuinely fixed it. So it questions if he truly is a bad guy, though. Yeah, I think... I think at the beginning of the story he has every intention of staying on Laxo and forgetting about Superman. And he can't. His hatred just won't let him let it go. I honestly think at the beginning of this story he was willing to call it quits. And then slowly over time he's the been more like... Time yeah, the more angry he gets. He just like... I can't hack it, I can't do it, Superman's still out though. I have to stop him. Yeah. And that's just essentially led to his downfall. Does it think that the longer he goes without Superman, the more angry he is? Yeah, essentially, Superman's given him a reason for being. Yeah. Without Superman, Lex would be bored within a week. Mm. He'd have taken over the Earth, even if we didn't know it. Um, I love the irony as well that Lexus suffers the same fate as Krypton. Yeah, I noticed that the, here, Superman and Lex reflect... And are very similar to each other. Yeah. Mirror images yeah. of each other, which I thought was quite well, good. There's that and the contrast as well as um, reflecting, because like Krypton exploding is what made Clark do the right thing, whereas mm. Lex are exploding is what made Lex do the bad thing. Yeah. And arguably, the planet exploding is his fault. Yeah. Isn't it? Uh, um, page 27, the panels in which Lex tries to reach Lex Jr. and Adora just before the planet explodes is quite sad. Mm. Um, I thought this was an excellent story. As I pointed out above, the entire story is from Lex's point of view. So he comes across as the good guy for most of it, with Superman portrayed as just as obsessed and even often rage-filled. The characterisation of Luther is very well done, with even us, the reader, believing that he's reformed. And an awful lot of it is left up to the reader to piece together a very subtle piece of writing that belies the reputation of this era of comics. Luther blaming Superman is, of course, typical of his character, and that they've both now lost planets is a nice piece of circular storytelling. The art's fine throughout conveying the sense of realism that Swan is famous for, so that the action sequences sing. But I have to confess, as a kid, I did actually find this work stiff and uninteresting. And in this particular story... I still think that. It doesn't have the sense of urgency that Superman 233 had that we covered last time, which was from a decade earlier. And compared to George Perez and John Byrne, who were at the top of their games in 1983, along with Ed Hannigan's excellent layouts, Frank Miller's Eisner-inspired work and Walt Simonson's stuff, Swan was starting to look dated. Still, one of my favourites as a kid, and it still is today. Well, when it's got the George Perez... George Perez. Yeah, it's followed by a George Perez poster. It just kind of makes you think maybe the story would have been better with George yeah, Perez doing it, it. I think that's what it, it didn't do it any favours. Yeah. So, yeah, when I bought this June 83, Byrne was Fantastic Four, um, Perez was deep in New Teen Titans, and so you do see that full page poster, though, that Perez has done. Yeah. And you do think that Swan stuff looks old fashioned. Well, it's like, say it's now with George Perez and Dan Jurgens. Mm. You think they're old-fashioned now, don't because you? Because they're surrounded by Jim Lee, Rags Morales and all them. 
Ivan Reese, yeah. Ethan Van Skeever. But it was back then where like Kirk Swan was surrounded by George Perez mm. and Dan Jurgens. Yeah, and Byrne and Simonson and Miller was all coming up. See, there are various different panels and pages in this that are gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And so, but certainly more as an adult, I can appreciate it more. But at the same time, I understand why my 11-year-old self thought that was a bit... Mm. I do think Swan's early stuff were much better. Issue 233, the artwork was better than this. Mm. But that's not to say the art in this is bad. No. But when I was 11, I thought it was dated. That's not to say I was a smart 11-year-old, <laughs> obviously. But... You know, whatever. A three-page text piece by Jerry Siegel follows, and what was possibly the last Superman drawing Joe Shuster ever did, due to his failing eyesight. Which I quite liked. His, like his feet are a bit small. Simple. Yeah. His arms are a bit small. His well. arms are a bit small. It's George... It's uh, Joe Shuster. Mm. Not George Perez. Uh, Perez also designed the new Lex Luthor armour. Was he the designer back in the day? I don't, I don't like know. Jim Lee's the designer now. Yeah, a lot of it did Perez's stuff, and Ed Hannigan did quite a bit as well. The second full-length story in this issue was called Rebirth. It was written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Gil Kane. One year ago, Superman stands atop the Daily Planet globe when his attention is called by a blind girl about to be run over by a speeding motorist. A quick blast of freeze breath and one super save later... And the girl is safe. But some of the watching crowd wonder, what if Superman ever turned against us? And I wonder if I'd picked up a modern comic by mistake. <laughs> the action ace zooms off into deep space where he spots Epsilon 4 about to go Nova. It is just beyond the dead computerised planet where he last fought Brainiac, and as he races there he is too late. The star explodes. Superman creates a vacuum and sends the radiation back into the exploding sun, but he inadvertently creates a black hole that almost pulls him inside. He manages to break free and leaves for home, contemplating his date that night with Lois. Because, you know, getting some's far more important than saving galaxies. It turns out that Brainiac caused Epsilon 4 to explode, but it backfires and turns him into molecules. In his corporeal form, he absorbs the knowledge of the 12 known galaxies and then disappears into the black hole. There, he discovers a being he calls the Master Programmer. Many months later, he is returned to the dead planet whence he came, where he begins his long gestation period. After awakening, Brainiac decides he needs to raise an army to tackle the Master Programmer and his other foe, the Angel of Death that is Superman, and attacks Sisters 2, which he deems has a population he can dominate. After decimating the population, Sisters 2 surrenders. On Earth, Clark has to cut short his date with Lana after an alarm at the fortress signals him. Scorer, the leader of Sisters 2, has called and informed Superman of Brainiac's attack. Arriving, Superman realises that Brainiac has decimated the city and is controlling the populace. Whilst they aren't much of a threat, the new Brainiac opens fire and suddenly Superman is sans power. The rocket that hits Superman is red sun radiation and removes all of his abilities. With the Man of Steel down for the count, the new Brainiac reveals himself to Superman as his death. Dun, dun, dun. That's staying it. Okay. I should expect so. <laughs> Are you saying anything? No. Oh, I thought you were waiting for a second. Oh, yes, yeah, you love this issue of Superman. I thought it was really good. Did you like it? Yeah. The bits would be fine. I, I was very impressed. But you liked the Brainiac battle, did you? Yeah. Did you? Did you like the bit where Superman was dating Lois but Clark was dating Lana Lang? 
Was it? No, there's a year between. Oh. <laughs> so he breaks up with Lois that. and Clark starts dating Lana. He could get away he with that. He could so totally get away with it. If one of them brings up, say, but no, wasn't that with Superman? Because he's, he's Superman, he could yeah. so totally go to Clark. And then Laura and Lamaris. And then Superman and Lois later. And then Laura Lamaris, he pulls out the Kal-El trick. <laughs> Superman bigamist. <laughs> Play- to keep an eye on you. I think so too. <laughs> Plays his cards right. He could have the best night of his life with the uh, three. With all three of them. <laughs> a foursome and nobody else knows. A foursome with six people, or a sixum. <laughs> a sixum with four people. It'd be, wouldn't it? Because okay. there's three super. Cal, Ellen, Laura. Right. So you're counting him as three, as three separate people. people. Yeah. So basically, Superman's a bit of a nut job. No, he's just—he's just getting some. He's using all of his abilities and powers to get what men want: plenty or woman. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Chester wants biscuits. Apparently, Chester's hungry. (laughs) You have food. I want food. You can't have chocolate. No, that's very true. Page one. This page felt quite out of place in this era of Superman. Essentially, he stands upon the Daily Planet globe wondering if the populace is scared of him and that he wished he understood humans better. Mm-hmm. Did you know that was just so out of character for this era of Superman? What he felt like an alien now. Yeah. I know what. Yeah, I mean, A, it is very rarely, if ever, implied that the general public was scared of Superman in this era. Mm. That's a much more modern convention. And surely, as Clark Kent, Superman has a pretty good understanding of human nature. Well, that's, that's what he Clark's for, Clark yeah. Exactly right. He even acknowledges that it's, he's been here since in swaddling clothes, so sometimes feels he doesn't belong. Mm. What? <laughs> I begin to wonder if Wolfman was suited to Superman. Not so with Gil Kane, however. I've heard a lot of disparaging voices about the art in this run of action. And Gil Kane's suitability for the character, with some reviewers even going so far as to say, the worst thing an artist can hear, his old stuff was better. Mm. For me, as a kid, Kane's stuff with a slap in the face, completely different from the version of Superman I was used to, and it really spoke to me. For the first time in my comic buying career, I actively sought out action comics instead of the Superman book. And even then, I tended to buy Superman and DC Comics Presents simply as money allowed. Kane's angular art is totally different to Swamp, and he's just so exciting and dynamic. I even bought books of his when he just did the covers such a big fan of Gil Kane's work was I. I do think it's different, but I don't think it's as good. Do you not? No, I think I didn't like this issue as much. Oh, no, story-wise, this one one is nowhere near as good as the Curry Bears one. Art-wise as well. If this was on its own, I might have enjoyed one. Because it followed the previous story, not only do I think it was anywhere near as good in story, I don't think it was anywhere near as good in that. Right. See, I was the other way around. See, I think that, that first splash page alone, Superman looks pretty awful do you yeah see i suppose it's all contextual if you think about it when i was growing up kurt swan was the superman artist yeah that was pretty much all i'd ever seen you'd get flashes of different artists in like dc comics presents jose garcia jose luis garcia lopez drew a couple of issues of superman and did a couple of issues of dc comics presents and various different artists would do that but it all followed swan's model yeah and then gil kane who i only knew from his spider-man stuff 
at that point were, let's be honest, Ramita redrew an awful lot of Kane's Spider-Man stuff. Yeah. So that it doesn't really look like Gil Kane, it looks like John Ramita. Mm. And then this was out. And to me, as an 11-year-old, this was a punch in the face. It was such a completely different version of Superman. It was a completely different version of Gil Kane. Yeah. From what I knew, I was used to seeing him filter through Ramita. So, I think some of that was what made me have such a strong reaction to it that I had. Mm. It was a completely different version of it. Nowadays, I would actually probably be more with you that he looks off model. But back then, it was just so different compared to what I was expecting Superman to look it like. Was good or not, yeah, it was just different. It was well. I still think it's good. I think Gil Kane is a massively underrated Superman artist. Yeah. But I can see your point. You are more used to the Swan clean version mm. than this. I quite like it. His, his handling of the S is a little off con- off concept. I'll give you that. It's more similar to the newer one. Yeah, it's with it's its sharp edges. It's Superman Returns his S. Yeah. And given the amount that the redrew Kirby's Superman, including the S Shield, mm. and more recently Frank Quitley, I'm surprised Kane got away with this that they didn't have somebody redraw the S. Mm. Because apparently that is always more to do with copyright. What was the problem with Kirby Superman? He didn't look on model. Because I know, I know you've pointed out lots of times where it's been... They've redrawn like, it's not Kirby. Redrawn. Yeah. Somebody else has redrawn it. It wasn't considered on model. Mm. But to me it's like, don't employ Jack Kirby to draw Superman. You're going to draw over Superman. And then complain that he's not drawing Superman. Yeah. He's drawing a Jack Kirby Superman, surely that's what you're employing him for. But that's, so you know. do you have to redraw the S so that it looks exactly like the copyrighted S? Um, my understanding is because the symbol is copyright, that if they do changes to it, yeah, you're invalidating your own copyright. So my understanding is the S always now has to follow the same basic layout yeah. on everything, and that's why different artistic interpretations of the S are now not encouraged. But presumably they've copyrighted all the different versions of the S, yeah. I would imagine. So they'd have copyrighted yeah, the Red Sun. because Schuster's S doesn't look like the one that they have now, does it? No. It looks completely different. And yeah, have they copyrighted the my t-shirt that is the S shield in a Union Jack, or a Union flag? Would that? It's still the same S though, but... Yeah, so is it the S that's copyright? Or is it the colours as well? Well, presumably the colours don't matter then, because surely DC Comics can't copyright our nation's flag. But... But they can publish a t-shirt with that flag on it. But will they ask copyright if they're using our nation's flag, but on their S? I don't know. But I, that's still one of my favourite t-shirts. <laughs> I love that shirt. Yeah. I'd love the idea that there is an S shield for every flag in the world. Well, what about my Superman t-shirt, which is so blatantly fake? Yeah, yours isn't... Well, that's got around the copyright. Yeah. Because yours doesn't have the little yellow at the bottom. No. And it's, it's subtly different It does as have well. it at the bottom, but it's the bit at the top. You know, the little tiny bit mm. at the top. Um, that's missing. And the edges are thicker. So they've got around the copyright. But I actually quite like the S on that t-shirt. Yeah. Because it is slightly different, and it's obviously not. It's obviously yeah, a knockoff. It still says trademark on it. Yeah, who got you that? Um, Margaret and Terry. Right, so... Oh, yeah, it's fake. So they probably don't know yeah. that it's fake. But I, I quite like it, because it is. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's just me. Um, page two, exhibit A, my lord. Panel two of Superman diving off the planet globe is taken from behind him. 
So we see essentially Superman free falling into the panel as the buildings swallow him. I just thought that was supremely dynamic. Yeah, it gives you the sense of him flying, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the serve itself's well handled, where he swoops down and, and rescues the blind it's girl. The street and the. Um... Yeah, you did you not like that? No, I did, I did. I can see what you mean, where. Um... Just the dynamism of it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that freezing the engine would suddenly stop the car. Wouldn't the momentum keep it going? Yeah. So even though Superman flies the blind girl and her seeing eye dog out of the way, surely it would still run into the horse and carriage that was behind them. Yeah. Just because he's froze the engine, it wouldn't just stop it dead, would it? It would be better to like, blow up his tyres. Objects in motion and all that stuff? Yeah. Surely. Don't bring your logic here. Well, there's also the thing as well, this is all very dramatic, Superman, but surely it would have made much more sense to swoop down and stop the car. Rather than lifting then, the girl how up. How would you do that without hurting the driver? Mm, uh, see, Superman, I'm sure he could have figured something out. <laughs> Maybe if the driver's wearing a seatbelt, he'd have been fine. Oh, then would he have sued Superman for whiplash? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't I read that somehow. Probably. Um, I like the Chris Reeve dialogue exchange in the last panel as well, where um, the blind girl says, They say you're the greatest man in the world. Are you really? And he's, I'm just a man. Are you okay? Sure. Be careful. Goodbye. And poof, he's gone. Yeah. I quite like that. I could totally see Christopher Reeve delivering Moments that. Moments later, the same blind girl walks into a road again. <laughs> <laughs> and the story takes a dark twist. Yeah. Uh, page three. What? Panel two. We have the crowd pointing up at Superman. And saying, wow, what would happen if Superman ever turned his powers against us? Since when was Reed Richards a supporting character in this book? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's just how the, the, you see the negative in everything. Yeah. Like, out, out of nowhere. It's like, oh yeah, Superman saved me. Oh, well, what if he was evil and didn't save you? <laughs> yeah. And it's, I just thought this was totally out of place. It felt shoehorned in yeah. for the sake of... It felt like, so. ew, he's, he's planting the seeds for a subplot here, isn't yeah. he? But he's not doing it organically. He's just like, look, the people of Metropolis suddenly don't trust Superman. <laughs> and you're like, well, since when? Yeah. I mean, they have no reason to as well. Yeah, because he's just saved a bloody blind girl <laughs> in front of him. What <laughs> more do they want? What more can anyone ask? Um, yeah, I mean... I know that this is a plot element that current comics have picked up on and ran with. But they weren't shoehorned in. Yes, yeah, to be fair, as much as it's a development I'm not fond of, it was handled a lot better than this was. Yeah. I think this stems from Wolfman's more Marvel style of writing. Because mm. he's essentially... He was... I don't want to say a Marvel writer because he's had three years of writing Teen Titans at this point. But it worked well on the Teen Titans, which was essentially a Marvel book with a DC bullet on it. But a self-doubting Superman and a populace that fears him doesn't feel like Superman to me. It feels like Superman is a Marvel character. Yeah. I, I presume Wolfman was going somewhere with this, because it is, like you say, it just feels really shoe-armed in and lame. Mm. It doesn't service the story, certainly this particular issue. Uh, pages two and three, sorry, pages three and four, I've got no such complaints about the art. Kane does an excellent job with the starscapes and the backgrounds, and kudos as well to colorist Gene D'Angelo for the page where Epsilon 4 goes Nova. Epsilon 4, in addition being associated with Alzheimer's, was also a planet in Star Trek, apparently. Mm. When I typed it into my little research, going, I'm sure I know that name from somewhere. 
Page five. Um, again, Wolfman's characterization of Superman is a bit odd for the era where being pulled into a black hole almost wrenches his legs off. Mm. Which I thought was a bit... Really? I guess black holes are pretty strong, but mm, pretty Superman. Much. Yeah. There were some nice human touches. That he longs for a hot bath, belying his earlier comments about not understanding humanity. <laughs> if he needs a hot soak or a nice shower after a day at work, he understands being human pretty well. I also liked his line about not being Batman. I'm not used to close shaves, but his attitude to Lois, she's always loved me and always has, seems very <laughs> close to sexist piggery and taking her for granted. Um, page six has Brainiac's smug look turning to terror when his, his plan backfires which I thought was really well handled by Gil Kane I think this is where the story picks up for me with, with the Brainiac stuff yeah um, we all know what kind of stories I like and yeah and this, <laughs> then this gets into it doesn't it yeah. pages 8 through 11 Brainiac explores the entire galaxy in very little time and on Earth Superman splits with Lois and Clark starts dating Lana interspersed with this eclipse of super feats and Brainiac completing his evolution into a Geiger-esque cyborg type. No longer a bald green man clad in pink. He's more machine now than Coulon. Twisted and evil. Um, it's a great visual, which, if I'm completely honest, Kane doesn't handle as well as designer Ed Hannigan. Mm. That's the weak point of the artwork for or me. Or when Perez would do it or in Crisis. Well, would, oh yeah, Perez would do this version in... Uh, and he would do it post-crisis as well. Yeah. When he did a Brainiac story arc in Action Comics. Mm. Um, page 13, Brainiac's destruction of Sisters 2 is where... I keep wanting to say Cystitis. <laughs> um, is handled efficiently by Brainiac's new ship, which is a, a great design. I like Brainiac's ship, the giant head with tentacles making it look like a flying octopus, better than the Brainiac himself. Yeah. I like that, the spa- Brainiac well, spaceship. What I like about this Brainiac is, I think, being looking scary benefits him. Yes. Because before this, he's pink and green. Yeah, Brainiac but was never a particularly terrifying bad guy, that, was he? And he, you could agree, he was humanoid. Yeah. So, but having him be a robot, you know he would kill you with no problem. Mm. And there, there is that element of terror that the cyborg Brainiac gives. Yeah, well, there's something just inherently scary about a sentient robot. Yeah. That's out to kill you. Westworld, the Terminator. Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica, the Cylons, yeah. The new Battlestar Galactica, not the 70s ones, obviously. I don't think I was ever scared of the 70s Battlestar <laughs> Cylons. I mean, they look cool, yeah. Oh, yeah, they look great, but I don't think I was ever scared of something that could only walk at three miles an hour. That being said, would you be scared of the new Battlestar Galactica ones? I mean, as long as you're not looking at the green screen, you're perfectly fine. <laughs> the ones that aren't really there. <laughs> Oh, yes. Uh, page 15. Page 15. There was some very subtle suggestion here that Clark and Lana were headed for a night between the sheets. Mm-hmm. Lana is at Clark's apartment, obviously kissing him goodnight, and Superman muses that he was looking forward to spending the night with Lana. <laughs> Wolfman was, of course, the writer that had Peter Parker sleep with a married woman, so this was positively chased yeah. by comparison. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Whilst Beth, Betty Brandt went through a rough patch with Ned Leeds, right. she ran back to Peter, and you know, was Peter not with Murray Jane at this point? No, Murray Jane had dumped him at this point after he asked her to marry him. Oh, so you saw this as a way of getting back then? No, no, Murray Jane had gone. I think by that point, I think it was more a case of he was on the rebound from Murray Jane. Yeah, is how they justified it. But ultimately, yes, Peter Parker <laughs> slept with a married woman. It does leave it up to the reader to decide what's going on, so that's fair enough. 
Clark letting Lana walk home alone, though, <laughs> that seemed a little bit out of character. Out of character. Yeah, surely you would have at least called her a cab. Mm. And not just let her wander off on her own. I thought that was a bit unsuperman like. This this Superman, you know, the recent issue of Spider Man where he's well, Doctor Octopus. Yeah, I know the one you mean. Yeah, he, he feels a lot like this. I mean, it's the same person, but there's something. There's not something quite slightly right, yeah. wrong. I, I, I blame the scripting. Yeah, to be honest with you. Uh, page sixteen. I quite like the idea that the Fortress of Solitude has an answering machine. <laughs> hysterical. Superman isn't available to take your call right now, but if you leave a message and how urgent it is on a scale of 1 to 10, he'll be sure to get right back to you, Mr. Lister, sir. <laughs> I was going to say, let's, let's go very <laughs> with, with, um, does he also have conditions for how critical it is in different colours? Yeah. If it's a 1, he'll get back to you straight away. If it's a 10, it may be a couple of days. If, if it's a tangerine... <laughs> <laughs> Tangerine alert. <Yeah. laughs> oh, dear me. Page 20. Superman is incredibly overconfident on page 20. And actually, he, he actually plots to kill Brainiac. Yeah. His argument via thought balloons is it's not really killing because he's only a computer. But surely Brainiac has sentience. Because at this point, he doesn't know that he's a complete robot. Yeah. Surely, if he was from Kulu, therefore he was a life form, even yeah. though he is now evolved into a machine, he's still a sentient life form. In to the same extent, way. Though. Well, if they can argue that the Cylons were life forms, and Data was a bloody life form. But with Cylons, they weren't. I think if they're a life form, then they have to have their own humanistic um, personalities. Mm. With Cy- uh, Cylons, they don't have that. The Which niche. is what they're trying to learn how to have, isn't it? Yeah, but with with Brainiac, he was, but he isn't now in this version. Surely he's still sentient. He's sentient, yeah. He still has Brainiac's memories and feelings and emotions in this new body. Yeah. Because he still hates Superman. Mm. Robots don't hate, unless no. the Cylons, obviously. But he's... I'd say he's a human mind, or a humanoid mind, mm. in the body of a robot. I still thought it was very out of character for Superman to think about killing Brainiac. Yeah. And I thought his justification was very woolly. Because like you say, he does not know that he's not Brainiac. So he's still like pink and green. Yeah. So I thought that was a, a bit out. Uh, that said, I love the art. Kane as Superman constantly fluid, always in motion and in very different poses to the stock shots we were used to from Kurt Swan. The final splash page is good. But again, Kane doesn't have quite the handle on the new, more cyborg-inspired Brainiac. Very wonky. Yeah, Ed Hannigan's version it, on the next page, because Ed Hannigan is credited as the designer of the new Brainiac, along with Inkadit Giordano, mm. is another poster, and his version is much better. Yeah. Than Gil Kane's version. So again, the designers of the work, like George Perez, are better than the actual artists of the issues. Maybe they should have got them to draw them yeah. with this being an anniversary issue. Because it, it does let them down after you go through that issue and then you mm. get smacked in the face or something like that. He does a good job with Brainiac ship, Gil Kane. Yeah. I thought. It was just Brainiac himself didn't quite work as well, for whatever reason. Because also Ed Hannigan doesn't draw him with skittle brain. No. He doesn't look like he's got skittles in his, his see-through head. Yeah. So this, that, That's my favourite version of Brainiac. 
What, the one with Skittles in his head? No, 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 this, <laughs> the, the new robot one. Oh, right, okay. Because right. e- even with the Jeff Johns one, it's very disappointing that you have a cool, terrifying robot and then he's just a really... Didn't he bring back the alien. green guy in pink? Yeah. Jeff Johns. Because well, Jeff Johns was all about bringing back the Silver Age. They, they didn't make an argument that this is what he really looks like and that all the other Bruniacs were different. Right. See, I read Superman Brainiac and thought it was a bit weak. But I read Superman and the Legion of Superheroes and thought it was a bit weak. I, I actually really liked them. I wouldn't say really liked them, but for what they were, mm. I enjoyed them. See, I keep meaning to read Red Sun again by Jeff Johns and Richard Donner, but it's slap bang in the middle of it is that bloody 3D issue. And I hate 3D. Um, have we got a copy no we've got the 3D issue haven't we yeah I think 3D works well in comics I just hate wearing the specs to be honest it's let down by having to wear the glasses whilst holding a comic Mm. Um, even worse if you've got the trade paperback I would imagine oh yeah I mean like Final Crisis it's it's done well but you've got to hold this big book and wear 3D specs the only way I can read it is lying it down on my bed and so I'm trying to hold up these glasses What's lying down? I don't like three D comics. Um, but not my bad. There's your light as well if it's on glossy paper. Yes, you've got to angle it so you can actually see so what you're looking you at. You can't see it, but you've got to make sure the light's not on it. <laughs> so you've got all these problems with three D comics before yeah. you even deal with the three D. See, what's the three D works well? It's effort to get it to work. Yeah, for. and I can't be bothered. I'm reading comics for fun most of the time. I, I, yeah, I like it when they play 3D into the story. Like, it's not just, hey, 3D issues. Yeah, well, the We're Red Sun one... We're going to go through all the 3D Red ones. Sun did score, but it wasn't all 3D, didn't it? Only it bits of it were 3D. when he was in... Uh, the Phantom Zone? The Phantom Zone, yeah. yeah. Like with Final Crisis, it's when they're in the bleed. Yeah, whereas the Batman 3D one I've got, the John Byrne one, I just want a copy of that that isn't 3D. I like it in 3D. Do you? Because... I find it just a pain in the ass to read, especially since it was that graphic novel. Yeah. So you can't lie it down flat. It's because it's going to be bent. Yeah, because of the spine of it. It just keeps flapping around. I hated reading that. Mm. Even though I enjoyed it. Reading I, I it. I liked that. I, I remember as a kid, I just... Yeah, you would, you'd read that all as a, lot, a lot of times as a kid. Yeah, I wouldn't read it. No, that's just... what I mean. You would regularly get that off the shelf just to look at it with the 3D specs yeah. on when you were about five or six. Um, almost the complete opposite of the first story, in my opinion. The writing was okay, but the art was so different, I thought it was wonderful. Wolfman seems to be introducing an awful lot of Marvel-isms into the character, something Byrne would be erroneously accused of in his revamp, and they all leave a sour taste in the mouth. He writes Superman with a little too much self-doubt, and there's too much of the Marvel trope of what if he ever turned against us, which works in the Marvel universe, and with DC, with the right character. But with Superman, it just seems wrong. Because Superman's created to be the most trusted and Yeah, yeah, I I don't mind. I like the idea that there is one superhero that everybody trusts, Mm. and it should be Superman. Now, if we were just reading, say... Grifter. Yeah, well, I wouldn't care about bloody Grifter. Yeah. The, the general public can hate on him as much as they want. <laughs> uh, the origin of the new Brainiac actually left me a little confused. What exactly was the master programmer? Who knows? <laughs> I'm glad that wasn't just me. Uh, and the design is better in concept than in execution. Kane's art, though, is vibrant and exciting. And although he can't really handle the redesign as well as Ed Hannigan, in every other respect, his off-concept art dragged the character kicking and screaming into the 80s. Ironic, given that Kane is associated with 60s comic books. Mm. 
as an issue in and of itself, though, I thought it was hard to fault. The entire thing, yeah. Yeah, as an anniversary special, you've got two full-length stories, a complete well, text one page. Of them ten pages longer. Yeah, one of them's longer than a regular story. Yeah, good point. Two posters, all in a square-bound, handsomely priced package. It's not much more expensive. A regular comic is twenty-five p at this point. Yeah. So you're paying double what you would pay for a regular comic, but getting well, more th- than double. triple content. Yeah. Essentially, I'll say this about DC: they knew how to put together an anniversary issue. Back in, in the 80s. No. Unlike now, yeah. Um, let's see how they handle Detective Comics 900, should we? Well. Uh, the letters page is crammed out, understandably, because there's a meanwhile column, um, and some great video game ads for Tron on the Atari Woo-hoo. 2600, and Jedi Arena, which gets a great advert, yeah. which I thought was good. Although I have to say, as far as anniversary issues go, I think the next issue was better than this. Did you? I did. Oh, yeah. And the segues go... As segues go, I was very impressed with that, young Michael. Uh, yes, very, very professionally done. <laughs> I like that, that's very good. Uh, our next issue, as Michael pointed out, is another anniversary issue. The first superhero comic to feature a solo character to hit a milestone 400 issues was, of course, Superman issue 400. It was cover dated October 1984, but its actual sell date was July 12th, 1984. Once again, I was there to buy this off the stand. And in addition to being an issue that I love, I think the reason this and the previous pick loom large in my memory and my heart are twofold. One, they're both excellent examples of anniversary issues, double or triple length in size with multiple stories, special covers, pin-ups and text pieces. For me, these are everything an anniversary or special issue should be. And B, these are anniversary issues that were available for me to buy in the first place. Uh, The trials and tribulations of being a fan of US comics in the UK, and I presume other parts of the world as well, was the spotty distribution. Add to that the three-month lag time and that different titles appeared in different news agents and basically you bought what you could find. In addition, specials, annuals and anniversary issues, for whatever reasons, didn't normally get over here. So that I was able to buy both of these in standard news agents probably made up half of the pleasure of these comics. Whilst not being square-bound like Action Comics 544, they still boasted the really rather excellent gold ink anniversary logo across the top and an excellent painted cover by Howard Chaykin. The top half is Jarrell and Lara as a red sky and cloud cover hovers ominously as Krypton explodes at the midway point of the cover. The bottom half shows the rocket ship streaking in front of the American flag in front of the Metropolis skyline. Oddly, the Earth is represented as well, which is the only bum note for the cover. I just thought there was there was no need for that planet Earth, though. Um, I think it worked in, because there you are, Krypton exploding. Mm. And then the, the rocket ship's heading toward Earth. It flies past Earth. It flies past Earth, yeah. Exactly. Well... <laughs> so I didn't get that. Yeah, but the, Ameri- the, the, the New York skyline isn't the American flag. <laughs> well, yeah... I mean, it's representative. Yeah, all right, go on, I'll give it yeah. You know, I actually didn't know this cover was Howard Chaykin. Why not? Um... You it just looks, didn't recognise it as being Jacob. Yeah, because I, I actually really like this cover. It's awesome. I don't like Howard Jacob. Alright, fair enough. See, I'm lukewarm on Howard Jacob. I like some of his stuff and others no, I, I like some of his stuff, but I think everyone looks too wrinkly. Yeah. But I think this cover's great. It's an excellent cover, isn't it? It's an absolutely fantastic cover. I want this as a poster. Yeah. Even today, I'd have that as a poster. Um, 
Down the left-hand side, the best and brightest of comic book professionals of the time are listed as contributors. Um, I really wish the back cover of this had been the cover without the copy, like they would do with Batman 400, instead of the rather bland Frank Miller poster that is on the back cover, which... I'll be honest with you, I wasn't overly impressed with it. Yeah, quite bad. I didn't, I didn't like, I didn't like what the he's done to the S. I don't he like. He did that to the S in the Dark Knight books. Did he? Is that what he did to it? I mean, yeah. I, I presume he's trying to emulate the Schuster one. I don't like that his body seems out of proportion. Yeah. His, the top half of his body seems off centre from his pelvis and his legs, doesn't it? Mm. It's. I would much rather have had the cover as the back cover without any of the copy. I mean, if it was a um, thingy cover. What? What's the word? Fold over? Gatefold. Gatefold. A gatefold cover. Apparently there was a Superman 400 portfolio released with all of the posters in this issue represented in monochrome and a copy of the cover in colour without the copy but I've never actually seen it. The contents can be seen on the internet on uh, the golden age site.blogspot.co.uk uh, should you wish to have a look at it yourself. Because yep. I did. And they do look pretty damn awesome. To be honest, what made me that excited to read this issue was the um, artists on the front. Yeah? Were you disappointed when they were only posters? I, I was disappointed when a lot of the ones I was looking forward to were the actual posters, yeah. Yeah, I thought that. I mean, you'd think, I looked at this and John Byrne drawing Superman, that's cool. And I think his is one of the weakest in the book. And Mobius as well. Yes. Yeah. Someone I've um, looked to a great deal for the past two years in my art coursework. Mm. He's an artist that I, I really have grown to like and enjoy and so I was looking forward when I saw this and then I, I see that poster it's yeah. a bit disappointed isn't it yeah yeah I'll agree with that uh, the people I was looking forward to Frank Miller and John Byrne and with you Mobius are the most disappointing ones in the however um, some of the artists that I weren't uh, I wasn't looking forward you, to yeah put it in the back of the net yeah couldn't agree more for um, I think we're going to be in agreement about an issue yeah what's he called <laughs> Guy we don't like. Sinkovitz. No, I like Sinkovitz. I like Sinkovitz. To the one. Klaus Janssen. Klaus Janssen, yes. They're really not looking forward to his, but I thought his art was really good. Some of the best in the Right, world. okay, fair enough. We may not agree about that then. <laughs> well, well, it wouldn't be any fun if we did, would it? We agreed on everything. We wouldn't have a show. Yeah, it was good. Next yeah. issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on. Uh, the issue has a wonderful gestation as befits an anniversary of its stature. Elliot S. Magin, writer of Superman 400, noted that Schwartz growled, I want to get all sorts of artists in on this. He growled that he wanted artists who had never done a Superman story before, who could reinterpret Superman according to their own peculiar styles. Joe Orlando, who was just down the hall. Jack Kirby, who Magin doubted they would get. Frank Miller, Will Eisner, Bernie Wrightson, Terry Austin, Marshall Rogers, Wendy Peeney, Howard Chicken, Al Williamson, Mike Kaluta, Klaus Jensen, Mobius, John Byrne, Jack Davies, Leonard Starr, Brian Bolland, Walt Simonson, Mike Grell, Steve Ditko, Jerry Robinson, Bill Sinkovich, plus a literary salute from Ray Bradbury. Steranko, Julie said, and Magin thought Schwartz had truly gone insane. With some help from the talent coordinator Sal Amendola, Schwartz got them all. Steranko got so caught up in the fictional premise that he took it into his own hands to extend it further, creating what is, to this day, Steranko's last extended comic book narrative, rather than just a cover or a single page. In many ways, this was Schwartz's crowning achievement on his Superman run. Despite a few interesting stories and some excellent covers, issues 401 through 423 would be largely unmemorable affairs that felt like Schwartz was burning through inventory and biding his time for retirement, much like Weisinger had done before him. Issue 400, though, is sublime. 
It was written by Elliot S. Magin, with a revolving door of artists and an opening sequence by Joe Orlando. It begins with a wonderful introduction from Ray Bradbury, sorry, where he extols the virtues of the man of tomorrow. The story starts with Superman in solitary contemplation, preserving the memory of a culture and language long since dead. The planet Krypton. It is said that the greatest deeds of man are simple enough to contain in a single powerful sentence. Martin Luther King used the principles of non-violence to win civil rights for his people. Albert Einstein changed the way we look at how the universe works. Moses freed his people and laid the foundations for the laws of civilization. William Shakespeare built the groundwork for modern English literature. Joan of Arc led troops to free the people of France and was wrongfully burned at the stake for being a witch. Abraham Lincoln saved the Union and freed the slaves. And finally, Rocky to Earth as a baby from a dying world grew up to fight for truth, justice and the American way. Superman. This is the class being taught as schoolchildren are asked about the Man of Steel and his life and influence. They are all delighted by a quick appearance from the man himself as we are left to ponder what will people think of Superman in the future? How will he be remembered? What will be the living legends of Superman? The first two-page splash on pages two and three is fantastic and just the first look at some of the wonderful art we're going to be treated to throughout this issue. Orlando has a great shot of Superman flying across a small city looking sleek and elegant but on the next page Orlando has a very definite Wayne Boring tribute going on as the pose at the top of page four and the final shot in the last panel of this page are both very boring in style and execution. I thought it was delightful that the teacher in this sequence was just as happy to see Superman as the kids. Mm. It was a good intro, that one, wasn't it? Yeah. I quite like that. Nice little three-page introduction to the Man of Steel. This is followed up by a Brian Bolland poster, a traditional image of the shirt rip. It's perfectly serviceable, although for some reason Bolland's given Superman Spock eyebrows. Mm. It looks great in pencils as well. Yeah, have you seen the black and white version it's of that? It's in the art of Brian Bolland. Oh, is it? Oh, um, right. Okay. Along, I think along with his concept ideas for what he would have done for this as well. Right. My only real complaint about that one other than the Spock eyebrows is the S is tiny. Mm. It's followed by a Jack Kirby pin-up of Superman racing the space shuttle, which I think is a great piece. All the Kirbyisms are present and correct. Dots, crackling explosions, blocky fingers and weird angles. But combined, they make for, I thought, quite a powerful image. Not one of the best in the book. No. But at least we get to see Jack Kirby draw Superman. As opposed to in Fourth World. <laughs> well, we didn't. Mm. I can't certify that, this is not really. Can you not? I uh, can understand that. I can understand why somebody would look at that and go, ugh. But as somebody who does like Kirby's later stuff, particularly his later Fantastic Four and his Fourth World stuff, there is a certain appeal to me. Well, like my favourite Kirby stuff is his Fourth World yeah. stuff, but I, I, I don't know if I, I like this or not compared to that. It's inked by Terry Austin. I wonder if that's something to do with it well no because I'm looking at it and I just see Kirby yeah Austin's done a good job of not swamping Kirby's pencils Mm. but yeah I can understand why you may not be a fan of that if you're not a fan of Kirby and even if you are I can see why you would think it looks a bit off I I quite liked it. it yeah I quite liked it but I can understand why others wouldn't the second sequence has art by Al Williamson Despite them not being given titles in the comic, apart from the last story, Superman Through the Ages has titles for all the different chapters and we're going to use them for ease of reference. The title for this was Doc Homer's Superman Nectar. 
In 2199 at Armstrong City on the moon base of Luna, old Homer tries trading his Superman nectar to a gaggle of schoolchildren with a story of how he was the last to see Superman. It was 2067. Or maybe 2068. Old Homer was stationed on the spacecraft carrier Bruce Wayne in the asteroid belt. But as he was coming on for a landing, Old Homer took a hit to the thrusters. Spinning out of control, Old Homer feared death's embrace, but two warm hands broke right through and saved him. However, in the midst of the rescue, Superman grows faint as if there is kryptonite nearby. On Superman's instructions, Old Homer reaches for the cape pouch and finds a flask that he feeds to Superman. Recovering quickly, Superman takes Homer to the Bruce Wayne and is never heard from again. The child that is doubted this story from the beginning starts picking holes in Homer's story. You can't talk in space. The Bruce Wayne wasn't commissioned until 20 years later. You can't pour liquid in someone's mouth in space, etc. But once he's tasted the Superman elixir, he's convinced. The crowd buy in large quantities, but of course the boy is working with Homer. Later, as the duo leave, Homer tells his grandson the real story. And the legend lives. What do you think of that one? Wasn't quite sure. The art's nice. Yeah, but I'm not overly fond of the story, but I do like how there's... Whether you believe it or not, the guy believes it. And to him it is true. Yeah. And it's... Yeah, it was... Yeah, I thought the art was good. I mean, Armstrong City. We'll do the notes first. Presumably named after Neil Armstrong, is a domed city on the Sea of Tranquility. It has just joined the Union and is very similar in appearance to Joss Whedon's TV series Firefly. The man wandering into town with his elixir is like every corrupt elixir purveyor you ever saw in old westerns, sent up wonderfully in the outlaw Josie Wales. Remember Josie spits on his white suit? I've not seen that. You've not seen the outlaw You've totally watched the outlaw Josie Wales with me. I've not, actually. Have you not? No, the one time we were going to watch it, you lent it to someone. I have failed as a parent. I'll watch it. You should, it's Clint's best friend. I don't know what you mean, though, through... Through Twilight Zones and well, Old Westerns and stuff. You've seen redemption. it. You've seen it. Yeah, before. I, I know the stereotype. Yeah, you know, you know what they're aiming for. Um, he, he arrives on a horse, but he lives side by side with her cars and travel tubes. That yeah. just reeked a firefly. Oh, yeah. Didn't it? Oh, it did to me. I, I find it. Bel- I really find it hard to believe the name Homer survives to twenty one ninety nine <laughs> after the damage inflicted upon it by the Simpsons. Mm. But you know, maybe his mum was a big fan of the Simpsons, maybe which I would imagine. Going. I was going to say it's probably still on the air. Yeah. <laughs> season fifty six. Well, got to be more than that. Wouldn't it be season twenty one hundred and ninety something <laughs> by that point? Oh, they just not giving them seasons. Yeah, they, they, they just, they just make it continuously. Yeah. They don't stop making it. Every ep, every week there's a new episode. They have robots writing and doing them now. Yeah, like a Futurama. Yeah. <laughs> um, the art in this section, as we've mentioned, is gorgeous, especially the image on page three, as a long-haired, grey-bearded, Gandalf-esque Superman saves Homer in outer space surrounded by asteroids. The tech is glorious. It all looks like that future as envisioned from the 50s stuff that Frank Bellamy used to do in the old Dan Durr strips. And it's just so evocative of a time now gone, ironically, where we were still optimistic about the future in space travel. I adored the art in this. Yeah, I adored the art in this one more than the story, I think. Mm. Page four, rather prophetically, Superman says he tried death once and it's not all he cracked up to be. <laughs> Which could be taken as a subtle reference to Doomsday, even though this was post-crisis. Mm. Isn't it just great when things work out like that? Yeah, it was just coincidental. Yeah. And it all ties together. Page five, I love that the little boy pulls holes in Homer's story regarding kryptonite and the fact that it became inert. 
in Superman 233. Well, what what a like about this is how I'm, I'm reading it and I'm reading it as a comic and I'm accepting that liquid pours in space and people talk in space and then this kid points out it all it up and I'm like oh yeah because <laughs> we're so used to Superman talking <laughs> in space in comic books it's a comic you don't think about no you, you don't give that any thought do you? again like Firefly the primary mode of transportation on the moon base is horses yeah I have to be honest, I actually find this chapter to be quite derivative and unengaging. Maybe I watched too many westerns as a kid or too many small town episodes of Twilight Zone, which this feels oddly reminiscent of. The Homer story wasn't particularly interesting or entertaining. However, the art is lovely, and Williamson's mixture of throwback 50s future architecture and ye old frontier town homesteads mix to create a sumptuous visual feast that more than compensates for the story, which serves its purpose of setting up Superman's disappearance in the early 21st century and lays the groundwork for the upcoming tales, as even in the tall tales of a con man, a legend can grow and thrive. I think you've pretty much said what you thought of this one, haven't you? Yeah. That you, you weren't overly impressed with it. Uh, the next poster is by John Byrne, and it's rather lacklustre yeah. to some of the others in the book, isn't it? Byrne uses one of his photo backgrounds, so his art's actually quite minimal. Which and lets it down, because that poster is made up of... Yeah, essentially, photo, it's yeah. made up of the photo reference. His art's a bit looser to the eye than some of the others in the book, notable for being one of the few times Byrne drew post-Crisis Superman, but actually a bit of a letdown. Mm. in actuality uh, the next poster by Mad Magazine's Jack Davis is a humorous piece of Superman changing in a phone booth while Aunt May looks on <laughs> isn't it yeah. I thought it was pretty fun no. I like that but I always, I always have a soft spot for Mad Magazine uh, I Frank, find it creepy to be honest do you not like well you don't like Alfred E. Newman Dad, don't you creep you me never out. liked Alfred E. Newman from being little yeah. you've always gone I'm not <laughs> sure about him <laughs> Frank Miller seen some stuff. He probably has. <laughs> Frank Miller drew the next story, The Legend from Earth Prime. In the year 2230, Dr. Noah Mandel and his team of archaeologists are investigating an asteroid named Bradbury after famed sci-fi author Ray Bradbury. And they are being broadcast live by journalist Lois Olson on the Galaxy News Network with a discovery of staggering import. The rock, they believe, comes from a parallel universe and is in fact a time capsule that reveals one of history's most prominent mysteries. The secret identity of Superman. Lois states that her brother James Olsen IV recently discovered evidence that Superman was Morgan Edge rather than the generally accepted Bruce Wayne. Mandel says they were good guesses, but on an old vid they found The Adventures of Superman, a TV show in which all the principal players were actors. The video is from Earth Prime, a world where Superman was fictitious. Mandel knows he will be laughed at, but in this brave new world, fantasy is never far away. Miller takes the same approach here to his work on Dark Knight Returns in that it's all told from the point of view of a viewer watching a TV news report. Judging by the lines on the screen, neither he nor Maggie foresaw HD. Mm. One of my favourite lines on this page is at the bottom uh, of page one where um, all the scientists throw a little mini party and just go, <laughs> woo, yay, us! <laughs> Celebrating themselves. That's just like this entire story. It takes the mick out of itself, really. Yeah, it's very meta. Yeah. Before anyone was doing meta. Yeah. Because essentially what they're doing here is drawing attention to the fact there was a 50s TV show called The Adventures of Superman. It's like that imaginary story we covered in week one. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. It's like um, Superman matinee hero, yeah. 
there's some really good work by Miller on pages two through four where he manages to capture the likenesses of actors George Reeves, John Hamilton and Jack Larson as Superman, Perry and Jimmy. His Lois, not so much, as I couldn't tell if this was Phyllis Cooks or Noel Neal. If it's black and white, it could be either of them, couldn't it? Yeah. Because it does look like it's a black and white episode that they're watching. Oh, it may just be the colouring. He's made okay. it look like the black and white, I don't know. Uh, page two, there's a great line here. He disguises himself with the glasses, see? And Lois's retort, you can see right through glasses. Yeah. Which I thought was hysterical. That's a line that stuck with me all these years. Mm. As a kid, I did think oh, that was actually quite a funny line. I liked on the top of page three as well that we've got pictures of Superman as he was in real life, and he doesn't look like this man, <laughs> which I thought was quite interesting. The newscaster, a relation of Jimmy, punches up a photo of Jack Larson and Jimmy Olsen and points out their physical resemblance is non-existent, similar to the top panel of the same page. What would you say about the upcoming Man of Steel movie, if rumours are to be believed, <laughs> about a certain Jimmy Olsen? Jenny Olsen. Well, that's fine, then. It's not Jimmy Olsen. All right, fair enough. Yeah. So that's okay with you, then, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, it's, it's, it's the same role and the same character, but a different character. Uh, whatever. Jimmy's sister. Yeah. Earth Prime is our Earth, a bland and uninteresting place where there are no superheroes or heroes of any kind, really. Not yeah. anymore. Except for Superboy. Does Superboy exist on Earth Prime? In, uh, I'm not sure if it's in Crisis on Infinite Earths. I don't remember it being Earth Prime. But it maybe, is, maybe yeah, it yeah. is pointed out in Infinite Crisis. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Earth Prime. yeah, you are. And there is a fantastic bit in the, either the last... It's one of the last issues of Infinite Crisis. Yeah. Where Alexander Luthor is, is like done something where he can see he's all, <laughs> all the multiverse around him, and he's um, looking to make he's, he's applied an Earth together to make the perfect Earth, mm. and he's looking for Earth Prime, and he's looking around. And there's, a, there's an Animal Man moment where he looks directly at the reader and says, "Ah, there you are," and he reaches right out to you. And I thought that was a little fourth wall breaking. Yeah. Right. I'm tempted to read your Infinite Crisis omnibus. Yeah. But it's on the pile of all the other stuff I I'm tempted to read. The way to read Infinite Crisis altogether. It's a labour to read it altogether, but it is worth is it. Is it all good? Or are there some, is there some tripe amongst it? When I say tripe, but... There are some that are less good. There's uh, The best ones um, is the magic one that Bill Willingham did. Right. The Ranthanagawa. Mm. which whilst it isn't all that great the artwork is fantastic who is it? Ivan Reese. oh right of course um, but it's all good but some are better than others alright fair enough I may dig that off your shelf one day you never know I may actually get round to reading it <laughs> uh, Earth Prime first appeared in Flash 179 in May 1968 when the Flash was catapulted there by accident and sought the help of the only man who would believe him editor Julius Schwartz the writer of Flash 179 Curry Bates would himself travel to Earth Prime in Flash 228 August of 1974 and help the Flash battle the trickster I can imagine Grant Morrison was a big fan of those comics <laughs> Well, Jeff Johns, I think it was Jeff Johns, wrote a two-part story that tied into Blackest Night when this guy would just be living in Earth Prime and he collects comics. Mm. And he's reading an issue that ties into Blackest Night and goes, oh, crap. And then he, he like, <laughs> for some reason, he, like, remembers that he's Superboy. And then he gets attacked by Black Lanterns. Then he fight in the DC offices. I don't remember that either. Yeah. It's, it's, um... I don't remember I think, any of this. I think it might be Adventure Comics. Right, okay. Is that in the book? No, no. Alright, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, I never knew quite what to make of this one as a kid. 
and I'm not quite sure now. It's a cute little story. Again, like we just mentioned, it's very metatextual before the term was invented. And I suppose it demonstrates the need for heroes, be they fictional or real, in any walk of life. I like that it didn't overly mock the 50s TV show, and it actually seemed to show some reverence for it. It's hard to imagine if Miller had wrote this as well as drawn it, it may have been more contemptuous. The art is Frank Miller in his not-being-inked-by-Klaus-Jansen phase, which I understand a lot of people didn't like at the time of Ronin. I quite liked it. Yeah. I thought he did quite a good job with this. like you said, that it does feel a lot more like Ronin mm. on A Dark Knight um, rather than a Superman story, because everything about it, the art, the... It's Frank Miller. Well, yeah, but the art, the, the clothes... Because it's set in the future. Yeah. Right. Alright, fair enough. Uh, it does show the legend of Superman continuing to 2230. Mm. So I cry. I don't... I'm still not sure, am I? I like it. Yeah. But I don't love it. I don't... I don't... Mm, I'm a bit... I don't know. I still don't know what to make of it, obviously. Weird, that. I actually really like it. Okay, fair enough. Well, it's, it's down your alley, this one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the next pin-up was by Leonard Starr, best known for his work on the Little Orphan Annie strip. And in fact, Annie and her dog Sandy are both seen being carried by Superman as he flies through the clouds. Which was quite cute. Little it? Orphan Annie. Yeah. It's not funny, guys. My mum just died. Oh, too much robot shit. Uh, the next pin-up is by Walter Simonson. Superman stands upon the S-Shield as his cast of friends and adversaries carry him aloft. The background shows the outer space of Krypton, the Fortress of Solitude, and seems to show Baby Kal-El's vessel as the star-shaped craft of the movie rather than the traditional rocket ship of the comics. I like that Clark's, Clark, Clark's hat and specs are on the S, mm. representing Clark. Oh, quite like that. I like that one. It's refreshing to see to me, because the Simonson I'm used to is the new Simonson, who looks very, very bad. But th- yeah, this, see, you're not the only one who said that. This looks really good, and what, what I quite find quite funny is they're all walking on a rainbow, and Simonson's well known for doing Thor. <laughs> yeah! It's the Rainbow Bridge. Yeah. Well done. You know, I didn't not tweak that. Yeah, I like that one. I like the Simonson one. I think that's very good. I'm uh, a big fan of that one. Uh, Marshall Rogers and Terry Austin provide the art for the next sequence called Resistance. In 2491, homeless Conrad Glum wanders the lonely streets of Metropolis at Christmas time wondering what a sugar plum is. As he settles in for the night, the chilly air freezes him to the bone and he manages to break into the Metro Public Library. The troopers have forbade this, but Conrad doubts they'll be around tonight. It's too cold even for them. He finds the lower floors more to his liking and amidst the books, a box containing a familiar costume. He dons it, finding it much warmer than his threadbare clothes, but his actions are picked up by a security guard. Fearing he will be punished, he locates Conrad and, without hesitation, opens fire. The blast of fire hits the S-shield, but Conrad is unharmed. Thrilled that he has disobeyed an order, he flees down the steps of the library yelling for everyone to resist. As more troopers appear, the blasts bouncing impotently from Conrad's chest, people look at him and proclaim the legend to be true. Superman has returned to save us. The troopers aim for Conrad's exposed head and kill the poor man, but his words have captivated the crowd. Resist, they cry, and thus began the second American Revolution, sparked on the day Superman returned to Metropolis and saved us once again. 2491 was the year Butt Rogers in the 25th century took place. What's really sad is I didn't have to look that up. I just knew. 
bitty, 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 bitty. What's up, Buck? Resist, Buck. <laughs> oh, God. Page one, Rogers and Austin had a near definitive run on Batman. The opening shot is interesting as so far we've been led to believe that the future is a bit of a utopia with grand spacecraft carriers and lunar moon bases. Here, Metropolis is grungy, the smog-filled skies are polluted by chimneys and the bridge out of town is destroyed. It's nice to see there are still hover cars, though. Mm. Actually, now that you said that they worked on Batman, I can see this being Batman art now. It's very gritty and dark and very realistic. Which fits this story. Yeah. Have you never read the Marshall Rogers, Steve Englehart, Batman role? No. Get ye strange apparitions down off yon shelf. <laughs> never read Sign of the Joker and Laughing Fish. Um, I've read Laughing Fish when I was very young because that was something you made me read as I was very young. The Malady Penguin? No. Deadshot Ricochet? No. Hugo Strange? Um, no. You need to get that off the bookshelf and read it tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry, they're, they're definitive Batman stories. Anyway, we're not doing a Batman podcast at the moment. <laughs> I'm sure one will come. It's emphasised on page two that this is a bit of a dystopian society. The narrator makes it plain that there has been a wealth brought to Earth through the exploration and exploitation of space, which I thought was an interesting choice of word, and even in this time, thoughts haven't been persecuted yet. Subtly, Maggin lets us know that whilst there has been progress, the rich are still rich and the poor are still poor. The book Conrad picks up is a tale of suit... A tale of suit titties. <laughs> the book had a Conrad picks up... I think that's the porn version... <laughs> Charles Dickens <laughs> presents a tale of Sue Titties. <laughs> a tale of two titties. <laughs> Do you know what? I can't decide whether to leave that in or not. Uh, the book Conrad picks up is A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, which is about the French peasantry demoralised by the French aristocracy in the years leading up to the French Revolution, which is what this story is about. Yeah. Did you get that? I did. Nice little subtle re- literary reference. Um, the, the guards look a lot like Judge Dredd, I thought. They do, and I'm wondering if that was intentional. That the, guards, the guards do look like Judge Dredd. Mm. Right down to the helmets. Yeah. So yeah, I, thought, I think that was probably intentional. Page 4, the narrator tells us that authorities oppressing the little people has been the way for so long nobody remembers differently, <laughs> which ties in neatly to the Golden Age Superman, the champion, remember, of the oppressed. Conrad is the instigator of this revolution and he notes the library is shut because the authorities won't let people read. I like this rather subtle piece of social commentary as we currently live in a society where people don't read because, hey, the Cardassians may be getting married again. My granddad always used to say to me, Get out. Before that. If you can read, you can learn, and then you can better yourself. And historically, suppressing texts has been one way certain factions kept the populace in line. Page five, the troopers firing at Conrad and the blast just bouncing off the Superman costume with the line, It Tickles, is, of course, a reference to Superman issue 32 from January 1945. I have to say that's one of the things that I thought let this down, because it did play into the theory that what if it is the costume that gives him his powers? I didn't mind that, because in this era his costume was invulnerable, wasn't it? Was it? Yeah, because it was woven from the Kryptonian fabric he was wrapped in. Right from his spaceship so upon entrance into Earth's atmosphere that became super tough as well right. and his glasses were made out of the Kryptonian lenses of his cockpit mm. so his, his costume was indestructible right okay fair enough pre-crisis right. 
so I didn't mind it too much in this it's not the costumes giving him power it's just the costumes have the costume is protecting him he doesn't have any superpowers because he's wearing the costume so I was I was okay with that Um, Maggie gives no indication as to how this totalitarian state has come to be but it's quite easy for people in control to slowly start raising taxes and introducing laws that whilst appearing harmless are actually very damaging to the concept of freedom and citizens all throughout the free world are to be constantly vigilant the people in charge need constant reminders they serve us not the other way around and this rather excellent chapter the symbol of Superman is all that's needed to instigate insurrection one man can make a difference the art as would be expected from Rogers and Austin is lovely with Conrad in his woolly beaten up cap and ill-fitting Superman costume an unlikely symbol for freedom but that's the point well I like how it's not one man making a difference it's one icon making a difference because we see at the end someone else runs off with a costume yeah it's the symbol but it's one essentially it's still one man that instigates the revolution yeah but there is many people being that one man yeah yeah I like that one. I was a big fan of that one. Thought that one was really good. Um, this is followed by an excellent Bernie Wrightson pinup of a very angry-looking Superman breaking through a wall. Unlike the George Reeves TV show, this is an extreme close-up of Superman's face, and he looks really annoyed. There's, there's it, quite a bit of rags and morales in that. You're right. Oh, the other way around. Yeah, I know what you mean. But, um, yeah. That may be my favourite one in the book after the cover. Yeah. Because again. I don't know why I like that one so much because it's so simple. It's a close-up shot of Superman breaking through a brick wall, mm. but it's just great. Yeah, I like that one a lot. It's all I got to my favourite yet, though. Have we not? All right, fair uh, The art for the next sequence is by Wendy Peeney and is called "Our Greatest Treasure." On an outer space campus, future intellectuals debate if a superperson ever existed and if it were male or female. Yeah. That's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah. Really? I don't have a lot to say about this one. I thought this one was rather perfunctory, although it only ran three <laughs> pages, so it's limited in what it can accomplish. But is it wrong to think that this story was sexist in the fact that if it was a woman, then it was a good-looking woman, but if it was a man, then they were <laughs> tiny and... Neanderthal! Yeah. yeah, probably. Uh, there were some nice touches, such as the fact that everybody's strapped into the beds, implying there was no artificial gravity. But other than suggesting that people had started questioning authority in contrast to the last story, and suggesting that Superman, like all historical figures, will eventually just be ignored and forgotten, or have his legacy be tarnished, this didn't really add much to the overall. And I did wonder why the teacher woman was wearing a turd on her head. <laughs> well, to, to be honest, the only thing I really got from this story is that Superman is shown as Donkey Kong and Luthor as Mario. <laughs> so, yeah. which, is, which is very true. Yeah. Uh, the next pinup was by Will Eisner, in which the spirit wishes Superman happy birthday. Never understood this as a kid. Is Superman a giant or a statue? Um, I saw him as closer, but now that you pointed that out, I can see that the Superman writing is right next to. Mm. I'm still not sure as an adult. Is it? Is it cynical <laughs> of me to see this as just an advert for his own booth? For the spirit? Yeah. yeah possibly. I just... I mean, it's a nice piece of art. I mean, but there's a flaw in it. Why is Superman looking down at the spirit drowning a guy? But that's what it is. Is Superman there? Is he a figment of the spirit's imagination? Is it a statue? Yeah. I, as a piece of art, I like it. I don't understand what when it's saying. When you think saying. about it a bit too yeah. much, yeah. As a kid, I, I used to look at that and go, I don't get that. Is one. Superman giant now and is happy with the spirit drowning this poor man? Yeah. The art for the next sequence was by William Kaluta and Kelly Alder. It was called Last Son of Krypton. 
Further in the future, Aaron and Joseph attend a Cephalovision screening of the adventures of Superman. But in this interactive future, they get to play at being the Man of Steel. Again, very little page-by-page notes by this one. Uh, essentially a tale that shows us that kids of all ages will still thrill to the adventures of Superman in whatever time period. Mm. This interactive adventure takes where we are now and adds another level to it. In this, you get to choose your character and then you're able to be that character in a fully immersive 3D interactive world, kind of like the holodeck. The most interesting part of this story is that the historical perspective on Superman has changed, making him more of a cross between Batman and Doctor Strange. The cape has Strange's high collar, the utility belt is Batman's, as are the gloves with the bat fins on them and the scalloped cape. Superman is even referred to as the Dark Avenger of the Night and his powers, scientific devices of a lost civilization. It's a good tale, showing that kids will never tire of the Man of Tomorrow's adventures and the art's lovely. Mm. Well, what I found quite funny about this, which you might not have got, but video games now, um, for examples such as Heavy Rain, um, Gear Solid 4... Uh, movies with games around with them bits of game in them they are very much an interactive film now yeah so this is an interactive film well I've film, seen you complain about the amount of films in Metal Gear Solid yeah you're like I want to play the game dude <laughs> yeah want to watch a film because I'll watch a film they are just animated and interactive films now right what did you think of that one well I just took that from it but it was alright, wasn't it? It was a nice yeah. little story. There was not too much to it. Essentially, what you're getting here is how kids of the future will see Superman as a, a fictional video game character, character that you yeah. can play in a video game. Yeah. So, it was alright. Mm. I didn't... Again, I didn't dislike it. I didn't think it was great. <laughs> I enjoyed it. The criminals in it look like, what's his face from the League of Gentlemen, though? Yeah, they do. <laughs> what's on pegs? <laughs> Uh, the next pin-up was by Steve Ditko, the only Superman drawing Ditko ever did. It fits in very well with his worldview. Superman walks from the light, represented by the clean living family, into the dark, represented by thugs and hoodlums. Superman walks away from Archie, though. <laughs> yeah! Preppy boys at college. I've had yeah. enough from this. Put, put me in the DC world, now. Yeah. I like it, but I like Ditko. I'm not actually fond of this as a Ditko piece, because... His Superman is really thin and tall. Now, what's that might work with Ditko Spider-Man? Yeah. It really doesn't work with Superman. Hmm. It scores for me down the left-hand side. All the faces of the thugs are just beautiful in that way that they're not beautiful at all, but you know what I mean? Artistically. Well, the thugs, beautiful. I think, are Kirby-ish. Do you? Yeah. Oh, no, they're totally Ditko, dude. I, no, I can see early Kirby in that. All right, fair enough. I, I, I think that just positively screamed Ditko, to be honest with you. Uh, the next poster is by Mike Grell, probably the most traditional after Burns, with Clark Kent standing on the left in his traditional blue suit with red tie and fedora on his head, and the press pass sticking out, and Superman on the right. The S-shield is in gold in the middle. I think that was really good. Hmm. It's just a standard Superman poster. Yeah. But I quite liked it. It could have been... You know what it looks like? The movie poster for Mario... You know, they did the Mario Bros. movie. Oh, yeah! That looks just like that poster. Yeah, yeah, it does now that you mention it. Yeah, fair enough, all right. Uh, the Miracle Monday Dinner, which is the final story in the book, proper story anyway, not counting oh, yeah. the Steranko one, has art by Klaus Janssen. In 5902, the waning days of the 60th century, Riley Bendix heads home for his favourite holiday, the Miracle Monday Dinner. 
clad in numerous items of clothing from different eras, Lincoln's hat, Eisenhower's coat, there is the unmistakable t-shirt bearing the S shield. He takes his place at the table with his family when the door flies open and a man falls into the house. They sit him down at the empty place that is always reserved for the day Superman returns and Riley explains that Miracle Monday is a celebration of freedom. With the food consumed, the man is escorted to the teleporter by Riley who reveals that he knows the man is Superman, sent to ride through time. Riley asks if Superman will ever come back. I'll always be back, the Man of Steel replies. And every year hence, throughout Riley's old age, the place set for Superman mysteriously disappears during dinner. Whilst everyone thought Riley teleported it away, Riley Bendix knew the truth. Sometimes, legends live. Uh, page two, Warner Brothers will no, about, no doubt be delighted that the S-Shield t-shirts continue to sell well into the 60th century. Well, I think that's what leapt it down. I mean, yeah, he's, he's wearing something that's iconic, but let's face it, you can't go a day without seeing at least one person Not in a now. Superman t-shirt. Yeah, everywhere you go, at least one person has a Superman t-shirt. Uh, page three, San Diego Comic Con lives on. Yeah. Granted, it's on Arcturus, but judging by the fat Thor, cosplay's <laughs> still big. I quite like that idea. I like the idea that kids are still dressing up as Thor. In yeah. the 60th century. Arcturus Comic Con. Yeah. yeah, it's an entire planet now. Yeah. San Diego just grew so big. Well, you can see that. Yeah. San Diego's cramped, so they need a whole planet So they've now. gone to a whole planet Arcturus Comic Con, which is a gorgeous idea. Uh, Miracle Monday was invented by writer Elliot S. Magin for his novel of the same name, published in 1981. It also featured future historian Kristen Wells, who make a few appearances in the comics. It's revealed Superman appears in the 16th century after an accident containing a mysterious pulsing blob that arrives in our solar system. Superman's reaction to this ceremony is quite nice, and he seems quite touched that he's remembered as a mythic hero. Of course, Riley has just told him his future, creating a paradox, but whatever. Well, what I like about this is how Superman never reveals himself as Superman. Mm. He just watches and observes. Yeah, Riley... But knows that it is, yeah, it, but he never says that he is. Even though he might acknowledge that they're celebrating him, he doesn't let that get to him, and he just keeps quiet. Yeah, he just enjoys his meal. That's what Superman would do. Yeah, he totally would. Um, art-wise, oh dear, it's Klaus Janssen. I don't think it's Klaus Janssen. I think this is some of the best Janssen really? on his own, yeah. I mean, we've mentioned before on the show our love-hate relationship with Janssen. Over tight pencils, his inks can be quite good. Whenever he pencils and inks his own work, mm. I tend to find it scratchy and unappealing. It's not gotten to the showcase level. No, though, God, no. But Jesus. I, I think this is really good, Janssen. Right. See, I thought this was some of the worst art in the book. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> it might not be really good art, but it's really good Janssen. Yeah, alright, that's fair enough, I can go along with that. Um, the story is one of the best in the book. Yeah. The legend takes on its own life and inspires future generations to look up in the sky. Hmm. Which is no bad thing. Uh, Mobius provided the next pin-up. Superman walking pensively with a glowing crystal in his hand, possibly inspired by Superman too. Hmm. It's alright. It's not that great. No, okay. Yeah, I do like um, his Batman Black and White portrait, though. What's that in? Batman Black and White. Oh, right. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I'm, I'm just going with Mobius pictures here. Uh, what I find interesting, though, is that he's credited as Mobius. Why would he not be? Well, because he, he does art uh, under two different names. There's Jean something. Jean Gerard, yeah, yeah, that's it. And then there's Mobius. 
Right. Okay, fair enough. Maybe Mobius was a bigger name at the time. Or maybe it was because um, his French work was ginger rather than his international work was Mobius. Possibly. Yeah, it's not great, to be honest with you. It's not my favourite. The final story is written, illustrated, lettered and coloured by Jim Steranko and is called The Exile at the End of Eternity. Over the millennia, Superman's children and grandchildren helped mankind explore the stars. When Earth's sun exploded, man and Superman conquered the heavens. Over seven million years, the starmen explored the galaxy, answering many of the galaxy's most inexplicable questions, until the accident happened. On a far-off moon, a a robotic worker droid misinterpreted a meteor shower as an attack and let loose a barrage of atomic particle destroyers. The effect was a jagged turning of space-time, a vortex that swallowed everything. Some committed suicide, some vowed to fight to the end. The vortex consumed the universe when a blind Superman, Adam McKent, strode forth, stating that to beat this they needed to unite. Every remaining human coalesced into one space to become one, and as one transcended the mortal condition and became pure energy disappearing forever. Crushed by his actions, Adam McKent almost went insane, but his capsule landed upon a lush paradise world. His sight returned, but his power diminished as McKent mourned. What was the point of living with no one to share it with? But in a flash of light, Adam McKent found his Eve. story. No, and as an adult I can articulate why. For the first seven to eight pages it's a solid sci-fi tale of man putting aside their differences and exploring the universe as brothers and in this it succeeds admirably with some excellent Starenko art to complement the text. The minute he introduces Adam McKent the reader instantly knows where the story's going. There's quite a lot of religious subtext. Well, not just you instantly know that he's going to find an Eve and he's going to live on paradise. He's going to find his paradise. Because the name Adam. Yes. Yeah. As soon as the name Adam showed up, I guess the ending, even as a child. Um, had Cal McKent could have been. Yeah, that would have been better. Had Sterenko ended this after page six and just had the final page of mankind transcending this life for the next one after all their amazing accomplishments I think it would have been a stronger ending for the story and the issue instead we get the rather predictable Adam and Eve knockoff which is disappointing to be honest I think this is this was my favourite of all the stories in it see I thought the art and the storytelling was pretty damn great yeah all the art's brilliant and even with the, the Adam and Eve ending I can I, I saw that as um like the commentary on how Superman was the first superhero and here he's like this Adam is the first of the new race yeah so I I saw it like that but to be honest I think the the art and the way the story is told is the best thing about it yeah it's all double page spreads of panels that move across the page that taken as a whole is essentially one panel Mm. It's really good. I like the appearance by Rom Space now on page <laughs> five. <laughs> it's totally Rom, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, I've got no problem. The artwork's fantastic. And the colouring mm. is brilliant. The backgrounds have no lines. They're just separate colours. It seems like he's done the art in different colours. Uh, the artwork's stunning. 
does absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. Uh, maybe it's just my deeply cynical nature that turning it into Adam and Eve was just a bit predictable. But, you know, I, your point is valid, mm. that he's the first superhero and it works. So, um, The Sinkovich poster closes the issue, predominantly three-quarters cape. It's a behind-the-shot of a behind shot of Superman flying into a thunderstorm, which I thought was very good. Yeah, it's my favourite. Is it the Sinkovich one? Yeah. Because on the face of it, it's so simple. Yeah. But it's really good, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Yeah, I like that one. And I think that works really well as the closing. Yeah, Superman just flying into the sunset, or whatever he's flying into. Because he's very Sinkovich without being too Sinkovich. Yeah. Yeah, excellent, yeah. That's a very good way of describing it. Uh, there's a Jerry Robinson pinup of Batman and Robin swinging over a crowd gathered for some kind of ceremony in Superman's honour, replete with statue. Odd. It's also the only one in black and white. Mm. Lots of celebrities, though. I only noticed three of them. Um, well, because I, I only knew three of them. Yeah, well, I'm looking at it and going... There's Michael Jackson. Yeah, Michael Jackson's there. Reagan. Yeah, Ronald Reagan's Nixon. there. Nixon. That looks like Prince Charles. Yeah. That's Woody Allen. Oh, yeah. And then I'm like, I have no idea who some of the others are supposed to be. Well, Clark Kent's in there. Yeah, Clark Kent's in there. Julius Schwartz looks like he's there. Mm. Is that Jimmy Carter? Definitely. Possibly. But no, no, I don't recognise the rest of them. Mm. Um, finally, the back cover, as we mentioned before, it's the Frank Miller shot of a heavily shadowed Superman stood in front of the Stars and Stripes. Its use of black's very good. Yeah, but, but, but out of... Doesn't work well on a Superman, though. Yeah, I thought it was a bit disappointing, to be honest with you. Uh, it seems a shame to me that this seems to be the anniversary issue that time forgot. Yeah. Very rarely, if ever, do I ever see this mentioned on best-of lists, either of stories or issues, yet I feel it's very much underrated. Even in researching it, I could find very little about it until I came across an interview by Great Rao, I presume that's not his real name, on the Superman Through the Ages website. He asked Elliot S. Maggin, can you talk a bit about your work on Superman 400? Was the reaction any different when that came out? And Maggin replied, well, you've got to understand that I don't know what the reaction was. I was living up in northern New Hampshire at the time and was pretty much out of touch except by phone. I called up artists, I worked out stories with them as well as with Julie. Al Williamson actually convinced us that he needed extra pages to spread his segment a little. Jim Steranko called and read his whole script over the phone to make sure it was all right. It was, in fact, all right. Everybody working on it got really excited, it seemed. I do know that the marketing department at DC didn't want to do so much as a house ad for it. 45th anniversary, this little turkey marketing wonk asked me. So what do we do for the 50th, she wanted to know. I'm just going to interrupt a minute there. Surely you just celebrate the 50th. Yeah. That would seem to make sense to me. But okay. Elliot S. Maggin continues. Then it sold like oxygen tanks in Atlantis and they sent me a big royalty check, ignored the reorders and it sank out of sight. If you're a creative type, be very careful of companies driven by the marketing department. They're in the habit of doing very little marketing because they're too busy running the company. So I don't actually know the answer to the question. I kind of liked it myself. So it seems, and this is back to me now, it, even DC didn't quite know how to market this offbeat tale. Maggin attempts to explore myths and legends and their impact and legacy on people across time. More than ever, there's a very definite Christ-like allegory to the legend of Superman, something the comics tended to shy away from, even if it was a potent subtext in the 1978 movie. 
The mixture of art styles works for the most part, and the added bonuses of text pieces and pin-ups again cemented in my young mind what an anniversary issue should be. No ads, double the size, double the imagination. This is a great issue that we highlight here simply because I loved it as a kid and I love it now. What did you think? I really liked it. Well, I'm glad you like that. Because it never seems to be on, like I say, it's never on top ten lists of Superman stories. Yeah. Or, or even issues. It seems to have just been completely forgotten. And I think it's just such a great issue. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. Yes, some stories are better than others. But in something where but, you have several stories... Yeah, the, with anthology like stories, that's always the way. Yeah. But I just think it's glorious. Mm-hmm. I think even the art I don't like works... Yeah. In that issue. And you would have thought that it would have been fondly remembered with the artists on yeah. the I mean, there's, there's, there's a, some big artists yeah. on that. I think Batman 400 seems to get remembered more than Superman 400, but all things considered, I think Superman 400 is better. Yeah. Because essentially, Batman 400 is just another Batman story. Which one is 400? It's I've covered this with Mike Bailey on Bailey's Batman Comics. It's the one where Rachel Ghoul frees all his adversaries from Arkham. Essentially, it's Nightfall. Well, haven't we covered this? No, we did Detective Comics 526, which oh. essentially has the same idea. Right. Okay. Um, and it ends with a big fight with Rachel Ghoul in the Lazarus Pit, with art by Brian Bolland. No. Despite the fact that you can argue that story closed out the Batman pre-crisis. Yeah. It's the last pre-crisis Batman story. Essentially, it's just another Batman story. Mm. It's good, but this is it's a celebration of Superman. Yeah. yeah. So I think so I think Superman 400 is glorious. It's not expensive, lovely listener. If you've not got a copy, I don't think it's ever been reprinted in its entirety. Yeah. The Steranko story is reprinted in one of the greatest Superman stories ever told volumes. I forget which one, mm. but it is in there. Um, but it's not expensive. You can probably track this down on eBay for a couple of quid or a couple of dollars, wherever you live. It's worth it. It's well worth it. I urge you to go and pick it up if you've never got a copy. Simply because it's the great forgotten anniversary issue. The Bronze Age of Superman closed out in Superman 423 and Action Comics 583 with Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, a two-parter that effectively ended the story of Superman of Earth 1. Post-DC's radical shake-up of the comics universe with the crisis on Infinite Earths, Superman's rebooted, revamped, revitalised, whatever you want to call it. By the next issue, Superman Volume 2, Issue 10, the revamp was nearly a year old. With a cover date of October 1987, released on July 7th, 1987. This has a cover by John Byrne, a Superman being told to get out of Metropolis before you destroy the entire city! By a bedraggled Perry White, as the city behind him is in ruins. Adding credence to my theory that Byrne didn't actually change much at all, this is a very Silver Age cover. What do you think? No, I think it's Silver Age and... Uh, I think it's dynamic and burn on his best. Yeah, and it is very Silver Edge. Superman being told to get the hell out of Metropolis and everyone looking a bit bedraggled in the background. It's great, it's a brilliant cover. Really do like it. It also screams burnisms with all the rubble. Yeah, Yeah, it's prototypical burn. Yeah. Which, like you say, isn't a bad thing. I would argue perhaps that his right arm's a bit squat. Yeah. But. Now you point that out. By no means detracts from the cover. Mm. 
Because I've always noticed it. And I've only yeah. <laughs> And once it's there, you can't not notice it. Uh, the title of the issue is very Silver Age. The Super Menace of Metropolis was written and drawn by John Byrne with inks by Carl Kessel. Mike Carlin was editing by this point. Clark arrives at the Daily Planet building and sees three skeletons in the lift. They settle back to normal and Clark brushes off the trio's concern for his pallor as he can't explain that his X-ray vision seems to be on the fritz. Arriving in the newsroom, Clark and the trio, Lois, Perry and Jimmy, go about their business, but it's hard for Clark when he sees Cat Grant butt naked. Cat introduces Clark to her son, Adam, but Clark's glasses have melted. Quickly deducing that this is another power out, Clark makes his excuses and leaves, turning a door off its hinges as he does. Switching to Superman, he takes to the skies where Lex Luthor is monitoring. Of course, he's behind it. Superman flies up into the sky, afraid that if the power flux lasts any longer, he may hurt someone when his superhearing does the whacking. Suddenly, a huge red robot type being appears, claiming to be Clash, two A's. Clash quickly gains the upper hand and punches Superman to the street, where he grabs a hold of Superman's head and points the malfunctioning heat vision at property and shoppers. Clash disappears, and Superman flees to outer space, his heat vision still locked on. Not only is it two A's, but it's a K as well. Oh yeah, I didn't mention that, did I? <laughs> K with two A's. Over at the Special Crimes Unit, Captain Maggie Sawyer takes a subplot phone call to set up a future issue, but is called into action when Superman's rampage of destruction trashes her office. She orders Dan Turpin to meet up with her at Constitution Plaza, and for an FBI agent named Ben Friendly to be informed. Meanwhile, Superman gains the upper hand when his super strength goes kablooey, but Clash gains the upper hand quickly and hurls Superman to the floor. Maggie Sawyer demands to know what's happening, and Superman thinks she must have been at the brandy if she can't see the battle raging. With Superman out of control, Maggie and her team unleash hell on the Man of Tomorrow, and he quickly flees into space, where, with a moment to think, he puts it all together. A quick check with his telescopic vision confirms his suspicions, and he races back to Earth. In Metropolis, Lex Luthor panics when he can't locate Superman, but Superman arrives not only with a Clash action figure, but also a satellite that was directing him from outer space. Superman tells Maggie that Lex was behind the whole thing, but Lex's lawyer manages to get him out of it. Maggie tells Luthor that she's watching him, and on the way home, Luthor decides that Maggie needs to be brought down a peg or two. Um, page one's a, br- a brilliant splash page. Simply from the way the three skeletons are positioned, you can tell who they are. And they all have body language. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, it's a brilliant opening, isn't it? Yeah. Clark opens the lift door. There are three skeletons stood there. That talked to him. Yeah. Yes. Page two. This really could be the opening of an episode of the 50s TV series right down to the jeepers, Mr. Kent, and Great Caesar's Ghosts lines of dialogue. It seems churlish to point out that despite it being Byrne's mandate to update the Superman strip for the 80s, the clothes Lois is wearing are very dated now. And the her. Yeah, she looks like Sybil Shepherd in Moonlighting. Yeah. Doesn't she? With the, the big coats and, and such. Uh, page three, the opening panel of this page, the shot of the busy newsroom, is wonderful, with no detail skimped upon. Yeah. The mugs have writing on them, and as is the norm, there are framed newspapers, this time trumpeting such headlines as Nixon Resigns and Man on the Moon. It's very similar to the panel from Marvel Team Up number 79. Yeah. You remember? That had Clark Kent in it, yeah. if memory serves. Clark's reaction to seeing Cat in the buff is hysterical, <laughs> but offset by the fact he sees everybody naked. Yeah. I wouldn't want to see Perry's meeting too then. <laughs> it's not on my list of things to say. Uh, page four, I love nudity in comics. Because of how everything's yeah, perfect. All the strategically up. placed arms and legs and coffee mugs 
Uh, this would be spoofed wonderfully in Aston Powers, wouldn't it? Definitely. You don't remember the first Austin Powers movie. I do like this addition to Superman lore, that his glasses are now normal glasses and not made from his ship. This also applied to the movies, as Chris Reeve could use his heat vision, as seen in Superman 2 at Niagara Falls, through his specs. But Dean Kane would have to lift them up so they didn't melt, like they do here. Cat Grant's son's now wearing a Superman t-shirt. I thought he thought Superman was a bit lame at this point. I don't remember. I'm sure he did. Maybe Cat bought it in. Maybe she, uh, she's a fan of Superman. Trying to persuade him. Yeah, okay. Um, page five, where did the Superman suit come from? Yeah, I thought that, because he's not wearing it underneath. Yeah. We quite, we quite clearly see Superman Clark, sorry, removing his shirt on the bottom panel of page five to reveal bugger all. It could have been a colouring error. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, alright, yeah, alright, I'll go with that. Because it does seem like the outfit appears by magic, but yeah. Well, it can't be a colouring error, no. Because he's got his sleeves rolled up yeah. in the earlier panel, so he's not wearing the costume. So where does he get it from? Maybe he's running up to a storeroom. Or that a he leaves his costume yeah. in. No, I'm not down with that. <laughs> I was just about to buy your no prize explanation. Yeah. And then I went, mm, no. 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 <laughs> Page six, the revamped Lex Luthor. Now a brilliant scientist, but also a businessman and high muckety-muck, the new Luthor was dreamt up by Marv Wolfman and refined by Byrne. Byrne has even downplayed Wolfman's involvement in this. On the frequently asked questions section of his site, Byrne Robotics, Byrne said Wolfman's pitch was, Outside Metropolis, on a high mountain, in his palatial Xanadu-like estate, lives Lex Luthor, the world's richest man, and his mistress... Lois Lane. He paused for dramatic effect, I suppose, and then said, See, he's drawn to power. Burns said, No, but liked the world's richest man part and developed the character from there, making him a mixture of Donald Trump, Ted Turner, Howard Hughes, and Satan. Years later, Byrne found out Wolfman received a large check from Warner's when Lois and Clark went into production, and he was credited as creating the new Lex Luthor. Not to get into another who created what debate, we should mention Byrne himself made a nice chunk of change from Lois and Clark for creating LexCore, which was in fact an Elliot S. Magin invention. Mm. Byrne claims to have not known this, or he would have named it something differently. I am willing to bet he didn't pass the money on, though. Yeah, <laughs> probably not. Just a guess. I've always liked Byrne's rendition of the costume. We see here Superman tucking the cape into it. Mm. Which I thought was a nice I like touch. Burn Superman. Burn Superman's great. Mm. Much better than the one he drew in number 400. Yeah. But presumably he's, he's had a lot of practice drawing him at this point. See, with Burn, I can't say whether I like him or not. Can you know? Because there are sometimes I read it and I am in the mindset that, well, it does look a bit dated now, maybe he's not for me. But then I read something else and I do really like it. Did you say this was dated? The fashions? The fashion, yeah, but. I'm not sure, because I really liked the art in this. Yeah. Uh, well, how much of that is Carl Kiesel, then? How yeah. much of it is the Inca, in this particular case? But, well, like with the Kirby one, I can only see Burn in this. Yeah. No, I, I can... Kessel does a great job, mm. and it does look like Burn. But there is something about it that makes you, it's not Burn Burn. So that must be Kessel. But I thought Carl Kessel was a brilliant Inca for John Burn. Yeah, well, like... 
when I was little, you used to print off um, black yeah, and white. Yeah, for you to colour in. And yeah. it looks exactly like that. Yeah. Yeah, I did used to print out stuff for you to ink as well, didn't I? Yeah. When you were, pro, when you were little, you were doing yeah. stuff like that. Um, page seven, the panel where Superman's hearing goes out of control. Apparently, all the speech balloons are from other DC books that month. I like how they grow over a, a yeah. set of panels. Yeah, it starts with just one or two words and then just grows and grows and grows and the, grows and grows. The most prominent speech bubble on there is probably the Swamp Thing one. Mm. Now, because this interested me somewhat, I did my research. Really? I, yeah. Wow. Apparently, this month, well, you said each speech bubble is from comics out this month. Yeah. Uh, Swamp Thing, this month just came back alive from the dead yeah and uh the parliament of trees who say that speech bubble yeah did not believe that swamp thing came back from the dead right see I don't know where the rest came from and you can make a guess in some case I presume that's from the titans but when something generic as kill them yeah flags a part time idiot I presume comes from suicide squad mm. possibly talking about colonel flag please may I see your girdle <laughs> no idea. Somebody'll probably know where all them come from. X. Yeah, I, I don't know. Somebody'll probably know where all them come from. Mm. Um, the colouring on this page is yuck. No disrespect to Tom Zayuko, who was working with what he had, but the sky turns from yellow to orange. What was wrong with a nice light blue? Um, I can see the 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 changing of colour. I think that works. Yeah, the changing of colour works. Yeah. Why is the sky yellow? Um. Is it a fan of Coldplay? I've no idea. Haven't we always had problems with the colouring? Yeah. Of the work, though? Well, we've, we've just had problems with the colouring in this era because I don't see any reason for it not to be light blue. I yeah. think it would look just fine light blue. And later on, he will do some light blue skies. Mm. So it's I, I didn't understand. I don't understand this predilection for making the sky yellow and orange. Uh, it always just looked gurish to me. Yeah. Uh, page eight, full page splash of Clash. Which is a great throwback name for a villain, but I really think it could have, he could have been coloured better than bright red. I just, mm. again... And a complete bright red. Yeah. Down to his teeth. Everything is bright red, but, like you say. And it, it takes away from the art. The art looks really detailed, though, and you can't yeah. see it because it's just bloody red. But isn't he just an action figure, though? Yes. And if you look at an action figure, there is... They're all one colour. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Well, they used to be. Back in the day. Uh, pages 10 and 11, though, I thought were exceptionally well done. There are subtle hints about Clash. If you're paying attention, what with his ability to appear and disappear, and the scene where Superman destroys the building and the bus is very well executed. Again, you, you do want to wonder how they're ever going to trust him again yeah. after this, but Jeff Johns and, and his ilk will, will squeeze entire will, yeah, will get entire storylines out of that. Another nice touch on these pages was Superman's heat vision hurts Superman. I liked that, actually. When it goes on the fritz, he can't close his eyes I, I like Cyclops. how it changes if you can see it or not. Like, you can't see, but then if it's that strong... It's that intense. Yeah. yeah. I, I quite liked that, because... Yeah, in this era, they were playing around the idea he used his heat vision, yeah. and his eyes just went red. And well, you didn't actually see a beam well, or anything. Well, I'm kind of used to Superman, you can see a beam. But if yeah. it's Clark Kent doing something sneaky, then you can't see it. Right, well, in this era, Byrne was riffing off the adventures of Superman where you couldn't see it. Mm. So the fact that he's drawn big beams that showing that his heat vision but is really intense. I liked how it hurt his eyelids. Yeah. And how, um, say a prime example, this is the middle panel at the bottom of page 11 where... Yeah. It changes directions depending on where he's looking, mm. rather than where his face is looking. 
My only thing with that is he can't close his eyelids. Can he not put his arm over his eyes? Would he not burn his arms then? Would that not be better though than risking burning his eyelids off or burning people? Yeah, I suppose if he's looking up like that, he could hit a small moon or a space station. <laughs> it's not likely. Pointing lasers into the sky could damage an airplane. Yeah, that's true. I mean, fortunately, he didn't. But uh, we also get a burnism GNU five five six was a license plate that Burn used to use any time he drew cars. Again, according to his website, it's a tribute to the musical comedy duo Flanders and Swan, who used to sing a song about a GNU, the animal. So, okay. if you ever wondered why he always had GNU 556, which I did, I finally got an answer. <laughs> did it? Was it good enough? It meant nothing to me. <laughs> I looked at it and go, I'm a word of Flanders and Swan, because me nan used to know yeah. Flan- refer to Flanders well, and Swan. But after all that wondering... But after 20 wasn't... years of GNU, what does that mean? And I finally found it. I'm like, You'd rather oh. not found out. Well, no, because it's one of those things now that you know it is. It's just yeah. not that particularly interesting. Uh, page 12, the subplot phone call Maddie takes here relates to her daughter's disappearance, a case Superman will help us solve in issue 15. Again... It's the level of detail in the office and the buildings here, which is just fantastic. Kessel, I think, is a really good inker for Byrne, bringing the same level of detail that Terry Austin brought with ever, without ever sh- overshadowing the pencils. I'm particularly fond here of panel one of page 12, which is just an over, over, overall, an aerial shot of Maggie's office. And the shape of the office is the panel. Yeah, the shape of the office is the panel, which is awesome. And then the penultimate panel of page 13 where Superman's heat vision is just burning a water tower mm. and you can see cracked windows and, and the top of buildings on fire. It's great. The top of page 13 has another great panel of the window being shattered and Maggie's office being ruined, coloured pink. Yeah. Whilst I get... It would have been better left white. Yeah, I get that it's the effect of Superman's heat vision colouring it pink just looks cack. Yeah, because th- there is a good use of black though. Yeah, but the pink just... mm, Again. Page 14. A terrible yellow sky. Once again. Just gurish. Uh, One of the things Bird did excel at, which we get a a great shot of on page 15, was capage. Mm. The way he drew the cape to flow and mould around Superman's body was awesome. And we see an example of that here. Clash lifts Superman up and then hurls him downwards in one fluid motion. So Bird draws Superman at the point where Clash is pushing him down. But obeying the laws of physics, the cape is still flowing up mm. and wraps around Superman's body, which I just thought was glorious. Nobody really did that before Burns started doing it. Mm. And then Dan Jurgens would take that and just run with it, as we'll see a couple of times next week. I think Burn is loose with things like that, but is very um, stiff when it comes to buildings and computers and things. You know, which, which works, I think, actually, right. with this art, because... Everything's very free-flowing, but the rubble and the computers are very stiff. Because they're rocks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm really digging on this one, to be honest with you. On page 16 here. Yeah. um, When we covered Final Crisis, you said something about Dan Turpin, which I didn't understand. In Final Crisis, you said he had um, a face and personality transplant. Now, to me, that meant nothing, because I've only read Dan Turpin in Final Crisis, but here I see exactly what you mean. He's Jack Kirby. Yeah. He was based on Jack Kirby. 
So I, I thought I didn't like that change. I mean, he's based on Jack Kirby in Superman the Animated Series. Mm. He'd write down to the voice. To oh, he's do. in the Doom stuff, so Yeah, he's in the really gloomy yeah. two-part finale, which is so downbeat for a Superman show. Yeah. It was brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Um, it's a bit convenient that the building Clash throws Superman into was empty, but... You know, that kind of happens all the time in superhero comics, doesn't it? Do they have a, a procedure? Yeah, evacuate the building. And the expository dialogue is particularly wordy on page 16. But page 17, Superman fleeing out into space leads to three absolutely gorgeous panels of his shooting up and out of Earth's atmosphere and then finally into orbit. Again, it's the capage that really sells the movement through the panels. And there, look... Light blue sky. Yeah. Wasn't hard, was it? And it looks so much better mm. than that crappy yellow and orange we've put up with throughout the rest of the book. Why did he not do that all the way through? Who coloured Burn? Tom Ziuko. Uh, Burn can't colour, he's colour blind. Oh, yeah. So he can't colour his own work. That's why he prefers black and white. Uh, page 19. Lex calls his assistant a brainless female and completely blames her for the plan's failings. <laughs> Some things never change, do they? Even post-crisis, the man was an egotist. And then page 20. They've mentioned this on From from Crisis to Crisis. Burns' issues tended to end like this. This was a huge info dump page where Byrne explains that Luther had been bombarding half the country with solar energy and with that Superman's powers were boosted Lex could control which power went haywire and as such had his infrared vision on all the time and Clash was only visible in infrared Lex's lawyer gets him out of it by saying Superman's a bit thick and if he hadn't attacked Clash the robot would have turned itself off but Lex feels a bit responsible so even though it's all a government project he'll pay for the damage but the thing with Clash doesn't work because in one panel we see Superman talking to what's his face Maggie Sawyer yeah. yeah and Clash comes up from behind him yeah they don't see him they just think Superman's doing some wacky puppet dance uh-huh. and going do lally is what they think <laughs> um, if memory serves like I mentioned this was a weak point of the burn era every other issue seems to end with a huge info dump page that explained the parts of the plot he didn't get round to mm. in the actual story it still leaves a few unanswered questions, such as if Lex can control Superman like this, what's to stop him doing it again? Yeah. This was a good idea, that just because it failed this time doesn't mean it wouldn't work in the future. Seems to me Lex has got one up on Superman here, but he never uses it again. So, whatever. Um, I thought this was a fine, exciting, action-packed issue that suffered from overly girish colouring and a pat ended. To be fair, with the benefit of hindsight, it's difficult to see what all the fuss was about post-crisis, as this story could have been told in the Silver or Bronze Age with minimal tinkering. Superman didn't even rip his cape in this issue. Yeah. Well, not notably. I think there's a few frays at the edges, but nothing major. Um, providing there's, proving that there's no such thing as an original idea, the letters page is obsessed with the idea of Superman and Wonder Woman hooking up. Sadly, there isn't a single interesting advert. Yeah, well, um, Doc Savage one. Yeah, but it's not Doc Savage, is it? It's an updated version. I don't want an updated version of Doc Shot Savage. Doc Savage. Yeah. Didn't Brian Nazarello and Rags Morales do... Just... Th- yeah, they did a Doc Savage series not long ago, didn't yeah. they? Yeah, which Never was read just it. Doc Savage. Yeah, Maybe quite good. And then they did a second series where it was a team-up between Doc Savage, 
the original gun-wielding Batman mm-hmm. and someone else. Not the Shadow. No, it wasn't the Shadow. Yeah. What did you think of that one, Michael? Well, I, I liked it just for the fight scenes, really. Yeah, it was that's the fight scenes get the issue. Yeah. And the art. There wasn't much of a story behind no, it. Oh, it's just another Lex Luthor does something nasty. Yeah. Isn't it? Finally tonight. And again, we may very well be at the longest episode we've ever done. With two double-sized issues. Yeah, well, yeah, there were two double-sized issues. Something old, something new, as Superman 12 retells an old tale so closely, it may as well have been a rerun. Released on September 8th, 1987, with a December cover date, the cover shows Clark Kent, sans glasses, lifting a lovely-looking woman with luxurious long brown hair into the heavens, along with the wheelchair she's sitting in. Hearts bounce around in the background, as do S-shields. They should have released this in February. They should have. Wait a minute. This cover <laughs> looks an awful lot familiar. Shush. Only, just because I adopted it for this year's Valentine's card for your mum. <laughs> I wonder why you chose that. Did this choice for the show um, happen to influence Happy your coincidence. Card? Happy coincidence. Okay. <laughs> Honest. <laughs> uh, Lost Love is by John Byrne, writer and penciler. Writer and penciler, sorry, and Carl Kiesel Inker, and is dedicated to Wayne Boring. Responding to a telepathic summons from Ronel, Superman arrives on the coastline of Metropolis. Ronel has summoned Superman on the anniversary of Laurie's death and wishes Superman to tell the tale for the greatest poet of the seas. One year before he was Superman, Clark was a senior at the University of Metropolis when suddenly a wheelchair with a beautiful woman in it careens downhill, its occupant unable to prevent it. Clark acts secretly, burning the tyres with his heat vision, enabling to get to her and prevent a nasty spill. But when he catches her, it's love. The girl introduces herself as Lori Lamares, thanks Clark, and says she hopes to see him again. It is a week later when they do meet again, on a field trip to the Metropolis floating aquarium, the Ark. They chat and get to know each other, but as this is a comic book, there's trouble brewing. A Port Authority tugboat has spun out of control and smashes into the Ark. Clark gets Laurie to safety and then dives in to help as Laurie shouts that he must save the fish. Clark sees that the tug's engine room is ablaze and manages to separate the tug from the Ark, so the blast propels the tug away and people will believe it occurred naturally. He turns to see Laurie in the water and swims after her, fearing she is drowning. Au contraire, she is communicating with an octopus. Clark doesn't believe his eyes, and after getting to safety, Laurie says he is to never try to see her legs. We both have secrets, Clark, she says, by way of explanation, and to shut Clark up, she kisses him. The romance becomes the talk of the school, and after a few months, Clark takes her to where he and Ronel are stood now, and asks Laurie to marry him. He tells her of his abilities, but Laurie says she loves him, but she was sent to America for a reason and can never marry him. Laurie goes back to her trailer, and Clark, spurred by jealousy, spies on her, which is one in the eye for the Superman Returns haters, and he sees her and makes a suspicious call to someone saying she cannot remain in America and must return home. Has Clark uncovered a spy? After she leaves, he steals into her trailer and discovers nothing unusual apart from a bed that is actually a seawater tank. Some would say that was a bit unusual, but... Whatever. Clark seeks Laurie out and takes her out to sea where he drops her in the ocean and she drowns. The end. No. Um, I was waiting. Michael was just... Wait. That's not what happens. I don't remember this. <laughs> no. What actually happens is she whips her blanket free and swims free as a mermaid. 
She tells Clark that Atlantis was real, but sunk under the waves and over the generations, her people evolved into people. Atlantis is long since lost, and they are trying to locate it, hence her studies. Clark offers to look, but Laurie says he belongs to the surface world and they kiss forever. Years later, Aquaman tells Superman he has found Atlantis, and Clark gets in touch with Laurie via an unhinged old sea dog called Hans Schmidt. And with a name like that, you know he's going to be a bad guy. Why Clark just didn't, I don't know, ask Aquaman to find her for him, or even just use his X-ray vision and power of flight to find her himself, yeah, that's a question that's not answered. They kiss, but Schmid manages to get close enough to throw a knife in Laurie's back. Clark vows he will kill Schmidt if Laurie dies and takes her to Tritonis, where she is to be operated on urgently by Dr. Ronell, if she is to escape permanent paralysis. Irony! <laughs> of course, Ronell is successful, but he and Laurie fall in love. Superman acts like a spoilt child, making all about him, but Laurie reveals she is aware of Lois and the two kiss again and part ways. Back in the present, Superman reveals he never saw Laurie again, and now she is dead, defending the deep he never will. But the story will live on as whale song forevermore. Beautiful poet, a yeah, whale song. A beautiful poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, this story was somewhat undone by the fact that it was later revealed that Laurie Lamoris isn't dead. Oh, right. So, <laughs> kind of ruins this, really, <laughs> uh, Page one. Whilst the splash page is quite literal. Splashes. <laughs> See what I did there? That was, that was quite... Thank you very much. Superman arrives over a churning North Atlantic Sea. It has to be said, Superman is really pissy to roan out. <laughs> Granted, as we find out on page two, it's not without reason. And it's a good way to delineate this different take on Superman. We've seen previous stories in the Bronze Age that made great strides in making Clark and Superman more demonstrative in terms of emotions, both negative and positive. But we've never seen him bitter before, which yeah. is clearly what he is here. He's bitter about the whole thing, which I quite liked. Mm. I don't mind a Superman that has human emotions. If anything, you prefer it. Yeah. Because he doesn't act on it. He doesn't do anything about it. He, he just, just kept accepts. himself. Yeah. yeah. He accepts that he's bitter about it. Because whilst he has human thoughts, he's still Superman. Yeah. Uh, page two, the flashback to a long-heard college-age Clark Kent. Reminded me so much of when they do similar flashbacks on The Simpsons. He even looks like teenage Homer. Yeah. Doesn't he with his long, wavy hair? He's going to walk out the Empire Strikes Back and give it away. Uh, there are times when having a secret identity does lead to the main character act like a real jerk. Yeah. Clark causes Laurie to fall from her chair, potentially hurting her, so he can catch her without revealing his powers. Now, granted, she may have hurt herself worse if Clark hadn't been there, so I'll, I'll give him a pass on that. But Byrne takes one of the most iconic moments of the 78 movie that you've got me, who's got you seen, and inverts it quite well. Clark still says, easy miss, I've got you. But it's followed up with Clark thinking, she's got me. As he looks into Laurie's face for the first time. And he really does draw a beautiful Laurie Lamaris. The final shot on the bottom of page three. She's just gorgeous. Are all mermaids like that? I mean, I know it's just lines on paper yeah. and all that stuff, but still. I did like that Byrne has Clark look into her eyes, the windows to the soul, where he sees a very different, much deeper personality. So he's not just falling for her because she's got a pretty face and a, an ample bosom. I always wonder why he didn't use his x-ray vision to just check on her legs. <laughs> but maybe he just didn't think yeah. he had to. Is it a lead-lined blanket? <laughs> 
That would be so cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, page four, there's some nice little bits here. Laurie has an accent and her voice sounds like musical, which is a subtle way of planting in the heads of the readers as Clark could just be being all mushy. Or not a siren or anything. Or not a siren or anything, yeah. It's offset by the clumsy piece of exposition in the next panel. Laurie spots the melted tyres and offers an excuse, which Clark just happily agrees with before thinking, she said that like we both know it's not true. (laughs) I really don't think this was needed, as the way the story pans out, it explains this far more organically. Having it here just hangs a neon sign over it that says, IMPORTANT! I like how he's he's not perfected it yet, and he he messes up. Yeah, like he's he's more concentrated on saving someone's life than doing it so that they don't know it's yeah. happened. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That he does screw up. He would get much better at that. Yeah, as as obviously as he became Superman. Page six. Clark saves Laurie at the expense of everyone else on board. In fact, he explicitly states that they can fend for themselves. Yeah. He's, he's not, not Superman yet, yet, is he? No, <laughs> he's not quite got that. Maybe he's still in the Smallville era. <laughs> yeah. Got another ten years to go. Yeah, got a bit to go, yeah. Page nine, I know it's comic book shorthand, but Laurie says she doesn't like anyone to see her legs. Not even you, Clark! <laughs> like Clark is someone special. She's only met him twice. Yeah. Granted, she's emphasised the legs so forcefully, there must be some part of Clark that's thinking, oh, bunny violet. <laughs> well, um... But the way Clark carries her, though, surely he would be able to feel... That she doesn't have legs. Yeah, because where he's only there, surely you can see like it's one thing and not two. Yeah, I did like, as well, that if you look at the way Burns draw... The tail, the tail looks like a... The, well, the, the blanket, the blanket looks, like tail. looks like a tail, yeah, which I thought was a lovely little piece of subtlety. Yeah. The, but, yeah, the, mm, we're asked to, to ignore a lot, really, to make this story work. The mm. fact that Clark is holding her legs there, but doesn't go, wait a minute, there's no... (laughs) There's not two things here. What's going on? Surely he would notice that. Mm. But maybe he's not thinking with his head at this point. On page 10, it says that Laurie has to be on by 11pm every night, which makes Clark suspicious. What nefarious reason (laughs) could there be for this? Why, another man? (laughs) Of course, that's the first thing that he leaps to. Um, page 11, Clark stalks Laurie and breaks into her trailer. Very Superman Returns. Yeah, the super stalker element of Superman Returns that everyone likes to pick on had previous. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, you can argue he's not quite Superman yet. Well, we can cut or him slack a bit. Or he's not Superman. Or he's not Superman at all, yeah, so fair enough. Uh, page 12, I really don't believe Clark stoops so low as to make a fish out of water gag. Yeah. But he does. Mm. Whack, 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 whack. <laughs> whacker, whacker, whacker. At page 14, Laurie ditches her top, giving Clark an eye full of mermaid goodness. And ever the gentleman, he doesn't say, God, blimey! He merely pretends not to notice. Yeah. Even when he kisses her goodbye, he doesn't try to cop a feel. Or, he, or he's really annoyed at the herb bra and just kind of keeps it. <laughs> I'm willing to bet when he's alone in his bunk, though, he really was the Man of Steel. <laughs> uh, page 15, I kind of alluded to this in the synopsis. Why couldn't Clark look for Atlantis? Yeah. He can fly. He has X-ray vision. Seems to me he could do this on his own. But when water is 75% of the Earth... I'm not saying it wouldn't take him a while. Yeah. But... In his spare time, just yeah. like... 
Oh, or fly up to orbit yeah. and scan all of the planet. Would he not have found it when he went swimming looking for pearls for Lois's necklace? <laughs> Oh, different continuity. We don't we don't refer to that anyway. <laughs> Certainly not the pearl necklace. Um, page seventeen. I assume Schmidt was able to get close enough to life, Laurie, because Clark was distracted by the fact that she was again letting them all hang out. Yeah, I presume that was the reason for that. I find it funny that um, even Atlantis docks are exactly the same as doctors anywhere else. <laughs> he won't steal your girl. Was well, it not even that? He's like, yes, we cut Superman, but uh, there is a a new. Doctor, who is uh, experimenting in something which hasn't been tested on a human yet. Yeah, the ending was very soap opera. <laughs> this guy that we don't know, we've never met before, doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the story proper, only in the, the framing sequence, just comes in and steals the girl. Page 18, Tritonis is more advanced civilization as the woman there, I'll have learned how to wear shirts. <laughs> that's how I guess that they're an advanced civilization. And that's seashell bras. Yeah. Or, or even no bra, which is what Laurie favours. Uh, page 19, the ending again is just so packed with Ronal and Laurie falling in love in between panels and Superman acting like a spoilt brat. But the ending where it's revealed that Laurie is dead is quite affecting, albeit ruined by future developments. The final panel of page 20 of The Whale leaving to sing its song, I thought was a really nice panel. Mm. Very Star Trek 4. I've not seen Star Trek 4. Of course you have. One with the whales. Nope. Uh. I've so failed as a parent. No, you've not seen me start You've not seen me start before. before. You've not seen the Outlaw Josie Wales. Yeah. What I thought was um, really hit this story was we just had that really sad ending where Laurie not only fell for someone else but then died. Yeah. But then we have the very last page yeah. in which Jonathan and Martha Kent get shot. <laughs> I haven't considered Just that. Just, you know, give you that extra bit of hope. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, by the way, Laurie's dead and Jonathan Murphy been shot. <laughs> Next time! <laughs> It's, it's, the, it's just the last page, like, just an, an epilogue. Yeah. Um, like Michael said, the final page of the story is a subplot so that we don't need to concern ourselves with it here, as it was a prelude to the big crossover event called Millennium, which really wasn't very good. Uh, concerning ourselves with this story is more the order of the day, and it's a mixed bag. The art's lovely, but the story has a few too many holes in it for me to fully enjoy this tale of star-crossed lovers. The ending's sad, though. Um, it's a virtual remake of the original story, The Girl in Superman's Past, from Superman 129 from 1959, with the main difference being Clark was already Superman and Laurie doesn't die at the end. In rewriting the story, Byrne expands on many of the events, ups the nudity, and kind of over-eggs the pudding with the ending, trying for a heartbreaking conclusion that doesn't work as well as the original, where Laurie chooses her duty to her people over her love for Clark as her reason for leaving. Nevertheless, it was an enjoyable read if you if you don't ponder yeah, it too much. I thought it was much. very similar to um, the girl that Superman forgot. The sweet, oh yeah, the yes. sweet Superman forgot. Yes, yeah, I thought it was very much like that. It does take a little bit of the ending of that and tack it on to the original Laurie Lamaris tale. I like saying, all honesty, I think the original works better. Yeah, because there's no big twist ending with Ronal or some that which comes out of nowhere anyway, mm. she just basically chooses her duty to her people. Which and makes says, more sense. Yeah, and says, look, Clark, we can't be together. Yeah. And it it makes her a more admirable character. Rather than, oh yeah, I know we have this history and all, but... But I'm shagging Ronal now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> See ya. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was alright, wasn't it? Mm. Anyway, sources for this week were quite limited. Uh, Superman in the 80s, 
has a, a text piece introduction which uh, provides a lot of useful information. The Kryptonite Companion, again, by Michael Urie, is an excellent book. The SupermanThroughTheAges.com website is worth checking out, as um, the information that from Burn came from www.burnrobotics.com frequently asked questions and again all the release information came from Mike's amazing world of DC Comics good bats this week only the Laurie Lamaris one was mixed in my opinion other than that the other three were, were pretty damn good yeah next time on an all new episode it's the 90s yay uh, as Batman drops by, so Superman can experience a dark night over Metropolis in a three-part story from Superman 44, Action Comics 467, and Adventures of Superman 654, we will be covering all three chapters. Then the Man of Steel returns the favour by visiting Gotham City for Hitman issue 34. It's a date. That about wraps it up, doesn't it? Yeah. My God, that's a long one. Yeah. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously. All music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended. Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show, which is a source of much consternation. New episodes drop every Thursday over at twotruefreaks.libson.com which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.lipson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they've discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and Comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.